One First, day, heaven extended its irresistible arm and held the cleaver of fate in its fist, and it cut us off. Uh, radio died in the fall of 1953, I suppose, that last season. To give you an example of how grim it was out in 1959, they removed suspense from the West Coast to New York in order to save $80 in sound effects technicians. Well, I saw it, sadly enough, just dying, uh, you know, like leaves falling from a tree in the autumn. Program after program were taken off the air. When radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York. And it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium television. If they had tried to hold on to radio, yeah, they might have for a season or two. They would have other money interest to create the television. Elliot Lewis. I believe there's a place for experimental drama in radio. The play you're going to hear is such an experiment. It's debatable whether it's too personal an experience. I don't think it is. Some of you may be offended, some revolted, some excited by the sharing of this experience. At all events, since it is an experiment, and since we'll be dealing with those strange depths in a man's mind called his subconscious, we ask your attention. Unit 99 to KMA 907. Unit 99, Sergeant Meredith, 909, in service. August, 1957. We're driving east on Route 50 from West Sacramento in a 1957 Ford Skyliner. The convertible costs roughly $3,000, has a Y-block Thunderbird V8 engine, and 212 horsepower. It's got something else, too. Car radios have become standard. U.S. Radio Magazine will soon state that 55% of all peak listening came from cars. Auto rating measurements are underway, but still ineffective. The job of a police officer is your protection. The cases you hear on this radio program are real cases. The police are real, the victims and the criminals are real. Radio stations are having a good year. Total radio revenue is expected to increase 3% year over year. Make no mistake about it. A median station in 1957 is expected to make nearly $120,000 in revenue, with a profit of $11,500.
urban stations are enjoying higher numbers thanks to higher populations and more national ad spots. The local sponsors are paying 87% of all ad costs and programming accounts for 33% of all expenses. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke is Dramatic Radio's highest rated show, with its Saturday afternoon repeat broadcast attracting even more listeners than its Sunday evening primetime installment. Somewhere between four and five million people are still tuning in from their homes. When factoring car and transistor radios, nearly 10 million people are listening. The story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Life and the world. Meanwhile, Major David Simmons just piloted the first hot air balloon to reach over 100,000 feet of altitude, skirting the outer rim of the atmosphere. With the experiment lasting more than 24 hours, it's the precursor to manned space flights. On August 28th, the Major appeared on Life in the World over NBC Radio in conjunction with the September 2nd issue of Life magazine. Good evening, this is Frank Blair. Tonight, from out of space, a journey no man has taken. I could see a unearthly purple, violet, a very deep color. One I had never seen before. Man has reached his slim and scientific hand deep into outer space. Last week, Air Force scientist Major David C. Simons, age 35, set a new record when he became the first man ever to go higher than 100,000 feet in a balloon. Working in behalf of a project for the Holloman Air Development Center, Air Research and Development Command, U.S. Air Force, Major Simons made this historic and scientifically invaluable flight. You'll see his face in a self-portrait, which is featured on the cover of the current issue of Life magazine, and you'll hear his voice now on Life and the World. Major Simons, will you background the purpose of this flight? This flight was a test of a new high-altitude research platform for studying human reactions at the 100,000-foot level for 24 hours and even longer. What did it look like up there? It was a truly beautiful sight and a sight that man had not seen before, particularly during the sunrise and sunset period. The rocket age, the Cold War, integration, and civil rights are all upon us, while radio drama hangs on for dear life. For a few minutes, I could see a unearthly purple, violet, a very deep color. Tonight, we'll step into a portal to a time with Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, and Fibber McGee and Molly. And along the way, we might just remember where we've been, so we know where we're going. What sensations did you experience? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 143. 
My name is James Scully. Tonight we begin a miniseries on radio in the world in the fall of 1957. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Michael Silverman's beautiful piano rendition of the English ballad, Scarborough Fair. It was perhaps made most famous by Simon and Garfunkel. In 1957, the duo recorded their first single, Hey Schoolgirl, which rose all the way to number 49 on the U.S. charts. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. The show, uh, as Fibber McGee and Molly, as a half-hour radio show, went off the air in about 1954, didn't 53 it? 53 or 54. Yeah. And then we did a 15-minute show across the board for one year, and then we did Monitor for about three years. Yeah. In fact, when Marion <clears throat> became ill in 1960, in February, this cancer was discovered, and we were just, uh, the contract was made out for three more years of Monitor at that time. We never finished signing it. Well, that was one of the great losses to radio, certainly. But you were with NBC for all those years, weren't you, Jim? We were with NBC for over 30 years. On June 1st, 1957, after three seasons as a five-a-week serial, Jim and Marion Jordan joined NBC's Monitor in short segments. The Monitor service had been airing for two years, offering NBC affiliates a full weekend block of available programming. In New York, on Sunday, September 1st, NBC's WRCA began airing Monitor at 12 p.m. That day, Fibber and Molly told a version of their origin story. My, it does bring back a lot of memories to go through these old newspapers from out in the garage, doesn't it, McGee? Yeah, they sure go back a lot farther than I figured. In fact, there's some at the bottom of the pile that I must have brought over here from my parents' home. This old yellow one, look at it. That's a real collector's item. That's the one that's got our birth announcements in it. Heavenly days, really? Yeah, right here. You know, you may not believe it, but I can actually remember those days in the hospital right after I was born. Well, I have a vivid memory of the first time I met you, dearie. You do? Sure. We were lying there in our cribs in the maternity ward. I remember I'd been dozing off and on all day. You're that new Molly Driscoll, ain't you, sis? Well, my last name's Driscoll, but I don't think they've given me a first name yet. Yes, they have. Your name's Molly. I heard my mother mention it when I was in there today. They're still calling me Infant McGee. But I think they're going to pick Fibber for my first name. They better be making up their minds. I'm three days old, you know. How old are you? I'll be three days at one o'clock this afternoon. And I can already lift my head up. Can you? Shucks, I could do that yesterday. I'm trained to become a great athlete, you know. 
You are awfully muscular. Nine pounds and six ounces. Not a bit of fat on me. I can even grab a hold of the top of the crib and pull myself up. You want to see me do it? Oh, I don't believe you can do it. Sure I can. Just watch. McGee, look out. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the way it happens. You fell out of the crib right on your head. Well, it just so happens, Molly, that I didn't fall out of that crib at all. You must be thinking of Leroy Boddenheimer, who was in the crib on the other side of you. I remember it all very well. My, that Leroy Boddenheimer is a real charmer, isn't he, McGee? Ah, he doesn't do anything but lie there and bubble. And he sure is a scrawny little runt. I bet he don't weigh over six pounds. Five twelve is what he told me. And he's going to be four days old this evening. I just turned three myself. I'm already up to nine six. I can lift my head up, too. So can I. I've been able to do that for almost two hours. I bet you can't grab a hold of the top of the crib and pull yourself up like I can. You want to see me do it? Oh, I don't believe you can do it. Sure I can. Just watch. There. How about that? Heavenly days, you did it. You're my hero. I'll never look at Leroy Boddenheimer again. And that's the way it was, Molly. I was prone to athletics and feats of strength even then. Well, it might have been that way. At any rate, you just reminded me of something. I need your help to get the top off that jar of pickles I bought today. Gee, I'd like to give you a hand, kiddo, but I'm having that trouble with my back again. You know, I think that Leroy Boddenheimer screws them jar tops on tight down at that grocery store just to embarrass me anyway. In 1958, tests found that Marion had a terminal form of cancer. She continued to work as long as possible. The couple had vignettes on monitor until September of 1959. Fibber, McGee, and Molly were the subject of Breaking Walls, episode 103. We lost Marion in 1961, and then there were no more new um, Fibber and Molly performances on radio. No, couldn't be. I believe the fact that they were not run, and that I didn't, after Marion passed away, I didn't break my back trying to keep it alive. I wanted Mm -hmm. to do things, but I never could do what I wanted to do. And I think the fact that that went on for all these years, which is about 10 years now, and and the shows hadn't been done since 1953, actually, Mm -hmm. the reason that all that has stayed away all this time is is what's making it, well, uh, popular is the only word, now. I think that's what's bringing this resurgence at this point. In other words, if I'd have kept going all the time, maybe there wouldn't be this interest in it now. I I have that feeling about it anyway. Well, I think the quality of the broadcasts stands up. Although Jim and Marion Jordan spent virtually their entire careers at NBC, they did guest star on the February 3, 1949 episode of CBS's Suspense. Here's a snippet from their dramatic appearance. You keep going. As long as you're breathing, you keep going. Even when it looks like there's no way out, you hang on by your toenails. We poked up and down those black valley streets that twist and turn and sometimes wind up in dead ends. Ellie stopped crying after a while. She slumped down with her head rolling on the seat back, limp as a rag doll with the stuffing leaked out. It took a long time, but it had to come to an end. I saw the bulk of the house looming up. There was light sneaking around the edges of the blinds up in Annie's room. She wasn't asleep after all. She'd be sitting up in bed. 
maybe plastering red stuff on her fingers and dreaming about the date with Mike. Bud's room was dark. He'd be wrapped in covers like in a cocoon and dreaming whatever boys dream I couldn't remember. Pulled up to the concrete walk I'd poured with my own hands before there was any Annie or Bud, and I cut the lights. In a second or two, my eyes got used to the dark. I could make out the high hedge Jelly planted around the place and the roof rising up beyond it. Out, missus. Face the house. Now you, Max. Slide out the same side. Stand beside her. Walk to the door. Slow and no funny business. I'm right behind you. Ellie, honey, you all right? All right, indeed. Smack flat on my face on a concrete walk and you falling on me. <laughs> Nothing wrong with her. <laughs> That's my girl. Oh, well, don't just stand there. Help me up. Here you are. Oh, I've got to get in the house before the kids come busting out here. I won't have them mixed up in this. Well, how's he doing, boys? Got him through the gun hand on the right shoulder. See? <laughs> a lucky shot, copper. If you weren't lucky, you'd all be cold meat now. Maybe. Matrick, isn't it, Uncle Joe? That's him. Miranda described him to you, eh? The old girl didn't miss a trick. <laughs> she even knew you were taking the back way home. You left a clear trail, Uncle Joe. Slick work. I had to get him out of the car before the fireworks started. Ellie didn't stand a chance. She helped, though. Ellie catches on quick. I'll bet. A mean guy like Matrick. Make him think you don't want to do something, and he'll break his neck doing it. I let on I was trying to run out of gas. That got us to Bill's. Then we both made out there was no sense going to Miranda's, so we got bullied into going to Miranda's. It was a thousand to one she'd run off at the mouth about the brush fires and scare him into hiding out. After that, all Ellie had to do was turn on the hysterics. He was dead set on coming here. <laughs> Bright boy, like I said. Bright enough. You did all right, too, Mike. I was watching the rearview mirror all the time you were tailing us, but you never showed. You knew I was there, though. When one officer starts double-talking another officer, he wants to know why. <laughs> officer, double-talk. You never said a thing to him except that I'd bought some place out here. Yeah, the Charles place. Poor old man Charles. <laughs> In a tough spot and moving out for good. Well, what's wrong with that? Matrick, didn't anybody ever tell you it wasn't smart to take up with strangers? Maybe I'd better introduce myself. The name's Charles. Joe Charles. Detective, homicide. Tonight I was off duty and was just taking my wife to a movie.
thank you, Fibber McGee and Molly, for a splendid performance. Why, thank you. Yeah, thanks very much, bud. We're not used to doing a show with a gun stuck in our backs. No. <laughs> We're used to doing them with Jack Benny breathing down our necks. <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> but that guy over there, he... He looks familiar. Why, dearie, that's Mr. Wilcox. Old Waxy himself, the guy that sells Johnson's Wax on our Tuesday show? Not Waxy on Thursdays, dearie. Sparky. Sparky, eh? <laughs> well, what do you know? Hey, Junior. Hello, Fibber. Hello, Molly. Hello, Mr. Wilcox. Say, you two were terrific tonight. Uh, tell me, did you drive over from Wistful Vista? Uh-oh. Molly, I'm afraid to answer that. Because if you did, I hope your car had Autolite resistor spark plugs. See what I mean? And listen, <laughs> pal... If I were you, I'd stop and see an Autolite serviceman on the way home. That old bull. Listen, of yours... Waxy, I mean, uh, Sparky, you don't have to tell me where to stop. I stopped on the way over. Why, those masterful miracles of manufacturing magnificent... Oh, now, McGee, McGee, that's Mr. Wilcox's story. Let him tell it. Well, what Fibber means is that Autolite parts and orig are original factory parts. Autolite parts and service and your car go together like McGee and Molly, Happ and Harlow, Amos and Andy. So when you replace worn-out parts, visit your Autolite service station or the dealer who sells your make of car and ask for original factory parts and service. Leading cars use them all. Autolite makes them all. Be right. Get Autolite parts and service. The great period of radio was from the time when I very fortuitously didn't know this at the time, obviously happened to fall into New York, from that to the war. From 1937, 38 really, through the war. It was mm. only seven years. Mm -hmm. The golden age of radio. If you'd have tuned into WCBS in New York on Sunday, September 1st, 1957, you'd have heard news reports at the tops of most hours. Concerts and other music programs filled the dial between 11.30 a.m. and 4 p.m. At 4.05, the CBS Radio Workshop signed on with the network's first dramatic offering of the day. Next up was suspense. In 1957, William N. Robeson was in the middle of a three-year run as the director. CBS had found multiple sponsorship for the series in late 1956. Ten months later, it was airing Sundays at 4.35 from WCBS in New York and at 4 p.m. from KNX in Los Angeles. By 1957, Robeson had more than 20 years of experience writing, producing, and directing radio shows. I was hoping you might trace your career. You were a drama student, and they didn't teach radio drama in, in those days any more than they taught television drama, uh, say, back in 1938 or something like that. So what were the, the events that led you into radio then after uh, having graduated from Yale? I was broke. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have told us that. You know, there wasn't that, uh, any place that... to go. I'd been a picture writer of, of very, very little success in Hollywood. Then the president closed the banks, President Roosevelt, just after his inauguration in 1933. I went to a party at a friend's house, and uh, a fellow I just met says, I understand you're a writer. I said, yeah, I'm a writer. So what can you write? I said, anything. <laughs> That's what you say when you're hungry. <laughs> That's right. And he said, can you write radio? I said, sure. <laughs> I didn't tell him I had nothing but a contempt for radio because I was a picture writer. He said, well, go see this fellow, Don. So I went downtown and met this fellow. This fellow had a derby hat on. His name was Don Lee, and he owned the Cadillac distributorship in California. And he also owned KFRC San Francisco, KHJ Los Angeles, and a whole string up the valley. Yeah, Donnelly Network. I remember Donnelly that. Donnelly Network. Yeah, right. 
And he took me to lunch at a health food restaurant with Smiley Wiley, his sales manager, always Carnation Wiley, we call him, who always wore Carnation in his buttonhole. And he said, young man, uh, what can you offer to radio? And I said, well, I think I just finished this assignment at Universal Studios. I said, well, I think a dramatization of World War Flyers. I almost said World War I, but they didn't say that in those days. <laughs> yeah. World War Flyers. I think be, there's Frank Luke the Balloon Buster. There's Von Richthof, and there's, uh, oh, so many of them. And all the boys in the Lafayette Escadrille, just off the top of the head. And he said, that sounds very interesting. You want to come in tomorrow and start writing? See if we like you and you like us? And I said, sure. So I went in with the brashness of 26 and seven years old and uh, uh, wrote it, and it was on the air. I never knew how much money I was being paid until I got a check, and I found out it was forty-six fifty a week. The September 1st episode was called The Man from Tomorrow. It starred Frank Lovejoy and Joan Banks. At the time, they'd been married for 17 years. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Those who know about such things tell us that an engine delivers little more than 50% of the energy potential of its fuel. The rest is dissipated in waste. Waste motion, waste energy, gases, ash. The same can be said of man, has been said in fact. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. If an average man were trained to use his faculties to the utmost, he could be a superman. If a superior man were so trained, what could he not accomplish? The answer is implied in the upcoming story. Listen. Listen, then, as Mr. and Mrs. Frank Lovejoy star in Man from Tomorrow, the last radio play written by the late Irving Reese, which begins in exactly one minute. American folklore is filled with legends about men who were as tough as nails, like the one about Pecos Bill, who went out for a walk one day Unfortunately, a big 10-foot rattler crossed his path. I say, unfortunately, for the rattler. You see, Bill was a mighty fair fighter. Why, he gave that rattler the first three bites just to make things even. Then he waded into that reptile and he everlastingly thrashed the poison out of him. By and by, that old rattler yelled for mercy and admitted that when it come to fighting, Bill started where he left off. <laughs> yes, that was Pecos Bill, a legendary American. Folklore belongs to every nation's legendary past, and I guess we Americans have our share of some tall ones. Like the one about... <laughs> but we'll have to save that one for the next time we travel your way. See you then. And now... Man from Tomorrow, starring Mr. and Mrs. Frank Lovejoy. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Even in these days of so-called full employment, you'd be surprised how few job opportunities come up for an ex-jet jockey. So it was with more than passing interest that I read this ad while I was scanning the classified section of the Sunday paper. It said, wanted ex-jet pilot. Unmarried, without family obligations, must be in perfect health and prepared for rigid tests. Successful candidate will receive good pay and be given opportunity to contribute to daring experiment and world betterment. Apply Tuesday at 10 a.m. Science Associates, 126 West Street. 
Well, science associates, you just got yourself a boy. It turned out there were quite a few boys with the same idea. By 10 o'clock Tuesday morning, nearly 50 of us were crowded in a windowless air-conditioned room in the windowless ultra-modern building of Science Associates. Oh, hi. Hi, Major. Well, hi, Randy. It's been a long time. Yeah. Some of the faces were familiar, guys that had been in the Air Force with me in Korea and afterward. We sat there and waited. An hour, two hours, nothing happened. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but this place is beginning to give me claustrophobia. I'm getting out. Hey! Hey, it's locked! Hey, we're locked in here! Even before this had a chance to sink in, another door opened on the far side of the room. A guy with a white mask on his face came in, carrying a Thompson submachine gun. Hit the gun! Everybody flattened on the floor except me. I made a dash for the man in the mask, but he disappeared as quickly as he'd come. Hey, Major... Major, how come you didn't hit the floor? You tired of living? Well, he was shooting blanks. He was shooting... Couldn't you see that? There weren't any bullets chipping anything. Besides, I knew it was a gag from the way he held that machine gun. When those babies are loaded with live ammo, you've got to fire them from the waist. Well, I don't like this. Come on, guys, let's crash the door and get out of this rat trap. Oh, save it, Randy. That won't do you any good. That door's as thick as a bank vault. And then, something else. Thick, black, acrid smoke pouring out of the air conditioning vents. And a sound from somewhere. Of an airplane diving. Every pilot remembers with horror the smell of burning oil from a plane out of control. It hit us way back and deep down, and some of the guys got panicky. And then the blowers reversed and the smoke was sucked out quickly. Attention, please. A loudspeaker cut in from nowhere. For the past two hours, you have been under close observation as a necessary part of this test. You were warned in advance the test would be rigid. As you file out past the guard, you will receive a token compensation for your time and discomfort. We now ask you all to leave, except the man who ran for the gunner. The door is now open. Thank you. Well, well, Major, looks like you got the job. Also, looks like I'm going to shove it right back in their faces. Well, I don't blame you. Well, so long. So long, Randy. Take it easy. For a moment, I was alone in the empty room. And then an inner door opened. And I wasn't so sure I wanted to shove the job in their faces. Not in this face, anyway. Your name, please. Well, well... (laughs) I hardly expected to find a blonde at the bottom of this. You will come with me, please. Well, I'll do nothing of the sort. Now, don't give me orders, Blondie. I want to see the guy responsible for this, and then I'm getting out of here. I take it you have lost interest in contributing to world betterment. Oh, yes, that's what it said in the ad. Well, whatever your lofty purpose, I don't like cold-blooded cruelty. Unfortunately, we cannot allow personal feelings to interfere with our objectives. Well, then your objectives are wrong. You will be better able to judge that when you know what they are. Well, I don't think I'm interested. And if I may indulge a personal feeling, callousness is unattractive enough in a man, but in an attractive girl... Neither your feelings nor mine will matter in this project, Major. I believe you were addressed. It was just plain Mr. Mr. Kentman. The war's been over for some time, Miss... uh... Dr. Frost. Uh, that's appropriate. I beg your pardon. Oh, nothing, nothing. I sometimes mutter to myself, the last thing I said to you, Doctor, is that the war is over. 
If it is possible for you to unlock your quite superior intelligence from emotional reactions common to schoolgirls and housewives, my senior colleague, Professor Baird, and I will attempt to convince you on the only basis that should appeal to the mature mind. Facts. Well, you go ahead and try, but I doubt you'll be successful. One thing that was most certainly successful, CBS's handling of radio during the oncoming TV era. A large part of this was because of Chairman William Paley's belief in the medium. By 1957, he'd been head of CBS for 30 years. At the CBS company convention in November of 1957, upper management predicted that radio was becoming fashionable again. A year later, Paley had this to say while winning an award. If I had learned anything about programming and personalities on the air by the 1930s, I think it was that you had to pull things in out of the blue sky. In other words, to hope and expect to find something somewhere without having it introduced to you formally. Now, radio and television are both, as we know, medium able to make a unique blend of information with entertainment. The new supplying function that radio could perform was evident very early to everyone. Yet it had a fairly tough time to get itself established, not with the public, but with itself and with its competition. The past always seems a little crazy when you view it through the reducing glass of time. And perhaps the early days of broadcasting were more than just a little crazy. But they were exciting and they were days of discovery. Like all discoverers, here and there you found splendid new harbors, and here and there you ran shamefully on a mud bank, and more dangerously, under rocks. Lots of things that seem funny now were distinctly not funny when they happened. This is the way it has always been, and this is the way I think it's always going to be. Thank you and good afternoon. And now, we continue with Act Two of Man from Tomorrow, starring Mr. and Mrs. Frank Lovejoy, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. It was a big, aseptically bare room with an uncluttered desk at one end. Behind the desk was the cartoonist conception of an egghead. A thin, bespectacled man whose eyes were so intelligently alive that I couldn't look away from them long enough to mark his other features. This was Professor Baird, keeper of the facts. You are asking yourself why we limited our appeal to former jet pilots. Simple. Only one man in 10,000 was able to qualify mentally and physically for jet training. The Air Force, therefore, indirectly performed the first of our processes of elimination. Fact. Additional eliminations due to flunkouts, mortality in training and combat brings the total to one in 20,000. Fact. The standards we applied during the two hours in which we observed your every action and reaction raises the mathematical incidence of your sensory acuity to approximately one in 100,000. Uh, I'm flattered. You will have greater reason to be if our experiment proves successful. 
You will be the only man on Earth possessed of your powers. You will be the man from tomorrow. Uh, how do you propose to go about that? We will first show you how we've trained other individuals. Dr. Frost, will you proceed with the demonstration? Yes, Professor. Come in, Mr. Logan. Mr. Logan, have you ever been in this part of the laboratories before? No. Would you describe it, please? It's a rectangular room, 40 by 20. The ceiling is 18 and a half feet high. There's a desk 12 feet from me, slightly to my right. There are two people seated at it. One has just risen. That will be all. Thank you, Mr. Logan. Well, Mr. Kentman. Well, it would be very impressive if any schoolboy with normal vision couldn't do as well. Agreed. But Mr. Logan is totally blind. Looking back now, I can hardly believe my own impressions. The blind man was followed by a deaf mute and a paraplegic who'd lost all sense of touch and smell. Their demonstrations were incredible. Not one of these persons possessed physical senses above the average, Mr. Kentman. The deprivation of one sense or another in the case of the blind or deaf man stimulated nature's desire to compensate for the loss. But what are you trying to prove? That man has powers even now that are beyond his comprehension. We wish to explore those powers. Suppose one nearly perfect man with superior sensory perception to begin with could develop the extension of his five senses to the maximum degree we've just observed. What do you think would happen? I don't know. Neither do we. But it is our conviction that this man would also acquire a new sense, a sixth sense, that would endow him with a power never dreamed of before. Don't you think it's a dimension worth exploring? Maybe. But how could anybody accomplish it? Training. By producing the circumstances that surround the blind man, the deaf man, the handicapped, you would have to agree to cut yourself off from the outside world for three years. You would spend six months living in a pitch-dark laboratory. You would sleep, eat, function in a world of darkness. Various sound devices will be used to train and measure your hearing responses. After that, six months would be devoted to simulating the world of the deaf-mute, and so on. You will be paid $20,000 at the end of the three years. All the necessities of living will be provided during that time. Then a test will be made, and if our predictions are realized, you will be signed for an additional five years at $20,000 per year. Dr. Frost will be in charge of the training program. Do you wish to undertake it? Well, it's, uh, it's a pretty serious move. I'd like to think about it. You have all the facts, Mr. Kentman. We would like a decision now. Do you think feeling might enter into my considerations, Doctor? Is that what you're afraid of? Afraid? Fear is merely an emotion, Mr. Kentman. I have learned to control all my emotions. I wonder. I beg your pardon? I was muttering again, but what I meant to say is I agree to undertake the experiment. I was led into a pitch-dark room, blacker than the blackest night. It was to be my home for six months. It had a bed, bathroom, closets. All I had to do was to find them. I won't waste time telling you what that was like. Just close your eyes tight and try to find your way around a room that's familiar to you and you'll get the idea. I was still stumbling around three days later when I reported for my training with Dr. Frost in the adjoining laboratory, which was even blacker, if possible. Oh, dear. Are you hurt? 
You wouldn't care if I broke a leg. There's a chair nearby. I know. I just fell over it. We can begin as soon as you're settled. Lucky it's so dark, I don't have to apologize for wearing my pajamas. Don't you like dressing? I love it when I can find my pants. Today's exercise will be recognition of pure tones. Here is an example. That is 1,000 cycles, or 1,000 vibrations per second, stripped of all harmonics. Now... What would you say that was? Oh, 1,100. It is 1,500 cycles. Now, please tell me when you begin to hear the next tone and what the frequency is. I couldn't make the slightest dent in that glacial reserve. I tried to match her at her own game for a while, but she loved it, and I'm human. Anyway, at the end of the six months, I could ramble through the whole place and never stub a toe. It was amazing how you learned to sense things in the dark and what your ears could do. 800, out. 4,500, out. Good, excellent. Mr. Kentman, your threshold of hearing is 20 decibels greater than the average ear. Dr. Frost, I can't see you, but do I detect a note of enthusiasm in your voice? Satisfaction, perhaps, Mr. Kentman. The experiment so far... Dr. Frost, have you ever let yourself go? Mr. Kentman, I am not nearly so naive as you assume, nor have any of your innuendos or mumblings for the past six months escaped me. I told you in the beginning that neither your personal feelings nor mine would have any bearing on this project. You haven't answered my question. I am fully aware of the nature of biological stresses. In a scientific way, of course. What distinguishes man from the animal is his understanding of these stresses. But mostly, his control. Well, control is a traffic cop with a stop sign, Doctor, but eventually the traffic has to go somewhere. I can understand the frustration of your masculine ego especially in this enforced loneliness of the experiment. Oh, thank you. We have only begun. We have two years or more to go. The first phase is highly successful. As a scientist, I am very pleased. Strange, Doc. My hearing is so good, but I have yet to hear your heartbeat. George Walsh was Suspense's announcer. He was also the announcer on Gunsmoke. Well, I was the last voice on the format of suspense known to my daughters in those days who were pretty small as Spooky Daddy. Spooky, Spooky Daddy. Oh, <laughs> did, you, did you ever use the voice, like, for disciplinary purposes? Never worked. Never worked, Never worked huh? Yep. They, they laughed at you, didn't yeah. they, George? <laughs> Are today's announcers, do you think, George, is as good as they were back in the golden days of radio? Well, I don't think they were announcers in the same sense as they yeah. were in those days. I think today they're all doing commercials. There's hardly any such thing as a format announcer anymore, hardly any such thing as a staff announcer anymore. That's right. Uh, as a matter of fact, I remember one time when I looked into the booth to do the closing credits and the last commercial, and from Norman McDonald, the director, I got a signal to stretch, and then from Frank Paris, the assistant director, I got a signal to hurry up, both at the same time. Huh? Then they looked at each other and, and completely uh, 
broke up and it left me with little to do. You know, I'm awfully sorry I can't be there in person, particularly because I wanted to see Jack Crucian again. I'm sorry you're not here. I was going to give you a big hug. <laughs> you know, I remember that guy from the early 1950s when he co-starred with Larry Thor on Broadway's My Beat. And let me tell you about Jack. He's such a good actor that I've known him over many, many years. And when I see him on the screen or on the stage, there's Jack Crucian. But 30 seconds later, he's got me believing that he is the doctor that lives across the hall, like in Promises, Promises. You forget who he is. He sees the character he's playing. He's that good. And now, we continue with Act Three of Man from Tomorrow, starring Mr. and Mrs. Frank Lovejoy. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Now that my hearing was phenomenal, they turned off my ears. They devised some newfangled earplugs, and I began six months of silence. Six months of being deaf as a doorknob. Deaf, but not quite deaf. Because I began to see sounds, to feel sounds like waves against my skin. I began to hear with my body and with my pores. Have you ever touched a sound? Have you ever seen thunder? You get so you look at sounds and almost see the waves they make trembling in the air. Have you ever tried silence? Try not saying a word, not uttering a syllable for an hour, a day. I tried it for six months until all the unsaid words piled up inside my head. They clung like unborn sounds at the back of my throat. Whoever said silence is golden never felt the lump of lead that accumulates inside you. Silence. And then the six months ended. The day came when she removed the fancy earplugs and the little canyon I'd been living in widened into a continent. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Nod to me or raise your finger when you can hear the sound of my voice. I... <clears throat> I heard you coming down the hall a minute ago. Were the plugs defective? Oh, no. Incidentally, I take... I take that it's all right for me to talk now. Yes, of course. Have I been a good boy? Have I done everything that you've wanted? So much so, Mr. Ketman, that we're giving you a few days rest before we begin your training for taste and touch. Well, can I do anything I want? Anything, within reason. Well, then I'd like to have a drink, and strangely enough, I'd like to have you join me. Perhaps that can be arranged. Oh, that wonderful sound of the clink of glasses. And I cannot tell you how dull a piano sounds when you only look at it. You missed the sound of music, then? Oh, yes, music. And the sound of a woman's voice. Well, maybe they're the same thing. Oh, incidentally, Dr. Frost, when I say woman, I even include female doctors. Kind of you. By the way, do you have a first name? Or are you only a title followed by Frost and followed by a long string of degrees? 
My first name is Jessica. Jessica? That's more like it. Jessica. Jessica. <laughs> Boy, after all that silence, it's good just to say a woman's name. Until the experiment is completely over, Mr. Kentman, it had better remain Dr. Frost. Well, okay, Dr. Jessica Frost, plus degrees. I give you a toast to you. You've been very cooperative about all this, Mr. Kentman. I want you to know that I... I really like you very much. Well, now, I'm sure the experiment is a success. I've finally developed a sixth sense. Oh? I distinctly heard a lovely lady saying, I like you very much, and it couldn't possibly have been you. I rather enjoyed the touch tests. It was one area I'd never realized held such hidden possibilities. After a few months, my fingertips knew the difference between crystal and diamonds. I could tell if you had a suntan merely by touching your cheek. As for the taste tests, food suddenly became a symphony concert. Sourness had many degrees, and sweetness had a range as wide as the spectrum of a rainbow. And then all of my highly developed senses brought on a new perception, something over and beyond and added to the rest. By the time my training was finished, I knew I had acquired a knowledge beyond knowledge. Here now is the moderator of today's program, Steve McCormick. Since the explosion of the first atomic bomb 12 years ago, the nations of the world have been engaged in a frantic race to develop superweapons. The fate of mankind hinges on the control of these instruments of destruction, but in the absence of effective controls, testing continues at a rapid pace. Here in Los Angeles, California, a blinding blue flash at dawn yesterday from the atomic test site in nearby Nevada, again emphasized to people here and throughout the world the worries of possible dangers in radioactive fallout. September 1st, 1957, at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time over NBC, the American Forum of the Air signed on with a talk on the dangers of nuclear testing. The day prior, a nuclear test was conducted in Nevada, only roughly 300 miles from Los Angeles. Later that month, the Rocky Flats nuclear plant, just 15 miles northwest of Denver, experienced a major plutonium fire, which caused plutonium, americium, and uranium contamination within and outside its borders sent two eminent authorities to discuss this important issue. Congressman Chet Hollifield 
member of the Joint Congressional Committee on Atomic Energy and chairman of the Subcommittee on Radiation, and Dr. Kenneth Pitzer, noted nuclear scientist from the University of California and former director of research of the Atomic Energy Commission. Well, gentlemen, let's begin with this thought. Has our Atomic Energy Commission adequately informed the public on radioactive fallout? Congressman, how do you feel about it? Well, I've been on the Joint Committee since its inception in 1947. And uh, I say that the Joint Committee has failed to make known to the people of the United States and the world the real true effects of nuclear explosions and the dangers of radioactive fallout. Dr. Pitzer, how do you feel about this? Has the AEC done its job in this respect? Well, I think the uh, efforts which the AEC, and particularly Commissioner Libby, have made in presenting the facts have been very meritorious. Unfortunately, the cold facts don't get the headlines as well as some scare statements, and therefore I'm afraid the public has not received the facts as well as it should. But I believe the Commission, and particularly Dr. Libby, has made a very great effort to uh, get the factual information available for the science well, you and mean, the general public. Do you mean by cold facts that the dangers that we hear so much about and read about so much, see about on the air, uh, on television, and hear about it on radio, these are, are not existent, that uh, we uh, shouldn't know about these things? Oh, no, quite the contrary. I, I think it's uh, very desirable that the public be informed of the various dangers and complications of high-energy radiation, which is a new and important complication of modern life. My point is simply that certain individuals have chosen to exaggerate these dangers and have, uh, have uh, I'm afraid, created uh, uncertainties and worries in the public that are really not justified. Congressman Hollifield? Well, I have a high regard for Dr. Libby, one of the AEC commissioners. And Dr. Libby has made speeches in many instances, however, they have been made uh, to scientific groups, to, uh, uh, to uh, groups of, of uh, small numbers of people, and they haven't been interpreted in uh, layman's language to the people of America. I do not accuse uh, Dr. Libby of any dereliction of duty as, as far as he sees it. I, I, I say that the Atomic Energy Commission has failed to interpret to the people in the people's language uh, these uh, highly complicated and scientific facts which I think they should know. Well, how do you do that now? Both of you have worked a great deal with this for the, for the years. How do you explain these things, and why isn't it done? We laymen are wondering about these things. Well, uh, as, as proof of my uh, sincerity on uh, my position, uh, for some time I've been trying to get hearings on the subject of radioactive fallout and the danger to human beings. Uh, beginning in uh, June of this year, we did have uh, May and June, we had hearings on this subject. And we had some 50 of the best-informed people in the United States, uh, scientists who took different uh, uh, viewpoints on this matter before our committee. And in each instance, we asked them to prepare their scientific uh, discussions and papers and so forth in layman's terms so the people could understand it. And just this last Monday, we released an analysis, uh, which I hold here in my hand, of about 20 pages which is in layman's language and which explains, I think, in this one little 20-page uh, document, explains more of the real truth and the real facts about radioactive uh, fallout than has been given by the Atomic Energy in an understandable form, the Atomic Energy Commission, in, in the 10 years of their existence. Mm -hmm. Is there uh, material in here which would change Dr. Pitzer's point of view, do you feel? Dr. Pitzer, do you think so? Have you
six years later, on August 5, 1963, in Moscow, thanks to worldwide fallout level side effects and concerns, the Partial Test Ban Treaty was signed. Ratification came from the Soviet Union, UK, and the US. It limited testing to underground facilities. The US and USSR were, at that time, responsible for 86% of all nuclear tests. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Howdy, folks. Happy Labor Day. You know, when I was young, I, I thought uh, nothing of working 12 hours a day, and... Uh, Today, the thought is even more revolting. <laughs> well, this is Pat Buttram, uh, happy to be back for delicious double mint chewing gum with Just Entertainment. Labor Day is a U.S. federal holiday celebrated on the first Monday in September to honor and recognize the contributions of laborers to the development and achievements of the United States. As trade unions and labor movements reached their peak during the Industrial Revolution, the Central Labor Union and the Knights of Labor organized the first parade in New York City. In 1887, Oregon was the first state to make it an official public holiday. By the time it became an official federal holiday in 1894, 30 states in the U.S. officially celebrated Labor Day. On Labor Day in 1957, Life Magazine's cover featured Major David Simmons and his hot air balloon flight, also talking about the Asiatic flu threat. Meanwhile, the Saturday Evening Post wrote about the drastic toll life without parole prison sentences wrought and a warden's plea for drastic reform in the American concept of punishment. Well, here I am back from my vacation, feeling like everybody does after a vacation, all tuckered out. <laughs> you know, though, it's, uh, it's great to get back to something restful, work. Uh, I went down home to Winston County, uh, which is uh, still right where I left it 20 years ago. Uh, uh, the fellows there, they still roll their own cigarettes, uh, only not as good as they used to. They, uh, I don't know, they, they can't seem to get the hang of uh, putting them filter tips on. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you, there's one advantage... Uh, one advantage to living down home, though, uh, 
there's no place to go that you shouldn't. Uh, now, Paula Richards, she's back from her vacation, too, still slender, smiling, and single. And uh, <laughs> the boys in the quartet, they're all as tan as uh, the bottom of a bacon powder biscuit. <laughs> and uh, the men of the Buttram Symphony, they're... <laughs> They're back from the sandbars to their music bars. You know? <laughs> Seeing as how Paula spent part of her vacation in uh, St. Louis, uh, everybody's going to join in on Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis. Originally hosted by Gene Autry, Just Entertainment was, in 1957, hosted by psychic Pat Buttram. Pat Buttram was born in Addison, Alabama, on June 19, 1915. The seventh child of a Methodist minister, he was set to follow in his father's footsteps when, just before his 18th birthday, he attended the 1933 World Fair in Chicago. Station WLS sent an announcer to the fairgrounds for a remote broadcast interviewing fair attendees, and the announcer picked Pat as a typical visitor from the South. To everyone's delight and surprise, his comic observations and bits of country wisdom kept the announcer and the audience in stitches. WLS hired him for their national barn dance program, giving him a nationwide audience. Pat soon became friends with Gene Autry. He went to Hollywood in the 1940s, appearing in more than 40 Gene Autry pictures, and became a regular on the Melody Ranch radio program. He later played Mr. Haney on CBS TV's Green Acres. Uh, you know, uh, seems like most everybody must have been... Uh chewing double mint gum on his vacation because I'll tell you, everywhere I went, I I saw folks buying that uh, familiar green package with the uh, five sticks of delicious double mint chewing gum. Of course, uh, that happens all year round because I'll tell you, double mint is a all-seasons taste treat. It tones up your mouth, you know, uh, puts life into it, helps uh, the sparkle of your teeth. Helps make your breath fresh and pleasant, too. And, uh, well, I tell you, it's a taste tonic after meals for you. Because uh, chewing double mint aids digestion and just helps settle tense nerves for you. There's no way I know of that a, a nickel will go further than uh, for a package of double mint chewing gum. Hours of flavor happiness there. Uh, when I was down home, I found that... Uh, They'd made one or two concessions to progress there. The, uh, for example, the jukebox at the ice cream parlor had a new record on it, uh, by the light of the silvery moon, uh, sung by Billy Murray and the Peerless Quartet. <laughs> background music on the musical saw. <laughs> well, I guess you already know without my telling you today, we salute Labor Day. You know, when I was real young, I had a notion that uh, Labor Day meant uh, everybody had to work. <laughs> well, that, uh, that explained why nobody could find me. I, I hid out all day. It was a long time before I uh, caught on that it, uh, it was a holiday. Uh, that's the way with some people. You know, they, uh, they work harder at trying to get out of work than if they just went ahead and just worked. Uh, <laughs> I've always advocated a minimum output of physical effort, uh, <laughs> as some folks have sort of suspected. <laughs> so here I wind up on the radio. Oh. 
All right, if, if this puts me in the leisure class, well, uh, how come I'm here working today and everybody else is knocking off? Huh? <laughs> and it just shows a fellow can outwit himself sometimes. <laughs> anyway, I'll say hats off to the, the folks that get the job done and keep things running in this country. Labor Day is for them, and I... I think it's nice it always comes on Monday, you know. Well, I've been away for a whole month, but I remember that uh, right about now it's always buttram bonus time. Well, for Labor Day, I don't know of a better buttram bonus than uh, to tell you how to enjoy your job more. <laughs> There's two ways to spell labor, L-A-B-O-R, that's one way, and L-A-B-O-U-R, that's the hard way. That's, uh, <laughs> well, it's it's harder because in L-A-B-O-U-R, you have to put you into it. <laughs> labor's real work with you in it, please. I remember Grandpa Buttram, he talked about uh, the working man he used to. Uh, of course, nowadays, the working man's become a laboring man, they figure it's uh, more dignified to labor than to work, I guess. I don't know. When Grandpa worked, he used to sweat. Today, we perspire. Uh, but what with the five-day weeks and the coffee breaks and air conditioning and power tools and electric typewriters, I don't know, it's getting so we don't even perspire. <laughs> I remember us kids, we used to play football, 11 men on a team. Today, they have 11 men on offense and 11 more on defense. They, uh, seems like nobody feels like working a full 60 minutes even when they're playing. <laughs> now, I, I know what you women folks, uh, I know what you women are thinking. You're thinking our work is different. Well, you're right. It sure is. Uh, I remember my grandma, she'd do a week's wash for a family of 10 and... Uh, then she'd cook breakfast, get the kids off to school, make the bed, sweep, dust, clean, be dressed and uh, ready to go shopping by half past nine. <laughs> I mean, half past nine that same morning. <laughs> so when you think your job's rough, uh, you just ask Grandpa or Grandma about the labor in the old days when it was, it was known as work. You'll perspire just hearing about it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm getting tired just thinking about it. Uh, so let's uh, get our minds off of such a subject as work by listening to Paula Richards as she sings, I'm in the mood for love. I'm in the mood for love Simply because
See, my root system goes back so deeply into radio. The, uh, I was two years old when radio came to birth in America. That's 1922, with the little crystal radios and sitting around my grandma's front room and listening to broadcasts. And I moved to Tucson, Arizona when I was 12, and Chandu the Magician came on. And God Almighty, I was just fantastically in love with Chandu the Magician. I have lived most of my life at the top of my voice. It's the only way to live. I can't imagine people not living at the top at a shout and a shriek all the time. And because of radio, it changed my life in many ways. Just listening to all the broadcasts, the early Sherlock Holmes shows, 1930-31, done by G. Washington's Coffee, Eno Crime Club, all those lovely things. The man you're listening to is one of the most celebrated authors of the 20th century, Ray Bradbury. By the spring of 1955, he'd authored more than 100 short stories and one novel, Fahrenheit 451, born out of a collection of earlier works. These stories were published in magazines like Astounding Science Fiction, Street and Smith, Weird Tales, Thrilling Wonder Stories, and the Saturday Evening Post. But I got to Tucson, Arizona, was in the seventh grade, and I had begun to write short stories, and I was under the influence of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Tarzan, those wonderful Harold Foster drawings every Sunday in the newspaper, beautiful stuff, and it turns out I had fabulous taste because it's still around and it's admired by everyone in the world. The French and the Italians are reprinting all of Harold Foster's beautiful material, and I've been in touch with him the last 30 years, telling him that I love him, and he's a man in his 80s now and still drawing on occasion. But anyway, got out to Tucson, listened to the radio, Chandu the Magician's on, said to all my friends, I'm going to go down to the radio station and get a job. And I said, oh, come on now, you mean, you, you really think you, a 12-year-old boy, can go down and get a job? Have you ever acted on the radio? No. Does your father know anyone there? No. Mother? Any other relatives? No. You mean you're just going to go down there and hang around? They're going to hire you? I said, yeah, I'm going to be irresistible. So I, I went down to the radio station and I emptied out ashtrays and I ran for newspapers and I just kept my nose pressed against the glass and watched. And by God, within two weeks I knew everyone at the station and I was reading the comic strips to the kiddies every Saturday night with a bunch of other kids. And I got free passes to uh, all the local movies, King Kong, huh? The Mummy, Dracula. I mean. I was living high off the hog, huh? <laughs> God, isn't that something? It was a combination then of my three great loves, movies, reading comic strips, and being on the radio. Among sci-fi enthusiasts, Bradbury was regarded as one of America's preeminent writers. In April of 1955, NBC staff writer Ernest Canoy was tabbed to adapt one of the sections of Bradbury's Martian Chronicles and The Moon Be Still as Bright for a new audition. The show would be called X Minus One. I think radio is great fun, and you could do very fascinating things dramatically in radio because you could be here and there and very quickly in the story. Countdown for blast off X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire.
From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents... X minus one... Tonight, the Ray Bradbury story entitled, And the Moon Be Still as Bright. The first three expeditions for Mars left Earth in a mushroom of flame, arced through the atmosphere, and finally dwindled to tiny specks in the big eye of the Mount Palomar telescope, and then were lost to sight forever. The prearranged landing signals flashed back to Earth, and then the radios went dead. One after the other, ships had disappeared and were never heard from again. But still, the rockets came. The fourth expedition emerged from the silent gulfs of space, angled down toward the floating red disk of Mars, down into an orbit as the order came to land. The last blast of the bow jets broke red against the blue desert sands, and the ship slid to a halt at the edge of a vast city that reflected the icy glare of the moonlight. For a while, all was still. All right, Park Hill. Open the airlock. Hi, sir. Fresh air. Hey, it's cold out here. Who cares? We got here. I thought I'd never hit solid ground again. Hey, how about a fire, Captain Wildey? It's freezing. Later. We have work to do. Oh, smell that air. Why, you could get drunk on it. Say, there's an idea. Why don't we break out a bottle and celebrate? Biggs, there will be no drinking done till we're secured. But we're landed, Captain. Three other expeditions landed and disappeared within 24 hours. Now, we're not relaxing security till we find out what happened to them. What do you mean? Maybe Martians? Sender, you're an archaeologist. How old would you say they are? I can't tell till I study them more closely. It's the kind of engineering we couldn't duplicate on Earth. Well, I'm not interested in the architecture now. I want to make sure there's nothing there that might be dangerous. Mr. Hathaway. Yes, sir? I want you and Spender to take a reconnaissance party into the city and find out what's there. We'll set up camp here. No man is to go more than 50 feet from this rocket. And there'll be no celebration till Hathaway and his party report back. In the sea bottoms, the wind stirred along faint vapors. And from the mountains, great stone visages looked upon the silvery rocket and the small fire. The sky was black overhead as the two racing moons threw knife-edged double shadows on the desert. All right, come and get it. Ciao. Hey, what do you got there, Jackie? Sort of smothered in cold chicken fat. Good, I thought it was something I couldn't eat. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Captain! Mr. Hathaway's back. Oh, Captain, Captain Wilder. Oh, yes, over here, Mr. Hathaway. Well? Most of the city's dead. Spender says it's been dead a good many thousand years, but we found one part about a mile over what toward about the... It? People were living in it last week, sir. People? Martians. Where are they now? Dead. We found bodies, thousands of bodies. They hadn't been dead more than ten days. What did they die of? You won't believe it. What killed them? Chicken pox. Chicken pox? Yes. Where could they get chicken pox? From Earth. Oh, 
than the other rockets did get through. Yes. I don't know what the Martians did to them, but I sure know what they did to the Martians. They gave them chicken pox and wiped them out. They just didn't have any resistance to an Earth disease. Think of it, Captain. A race builds itself for a million years, refines itself, does everything it can to give itself respect and beauty, and then it dies. Of what? It's like saying the Greeks died of mumps or the proud Roman Empire collapsed because of athlete's foot. We didn't even give them a decent excuse for dying. We just gave them chicken pox. Spender, get hold of yourself. You didn't see those bodies, Captain. Yes, I know. It must have been a shock. You need a rest, a little relaxation. The Martians are dead. There's nothing you can do about that now. Hey, you hear that? The Martians are all dead. Come on, let's break out a bottle and hoop it out. How about a case, eh? Good Lord. They have to do that now. Isn't there time later to throw old beer cans into the canals? Bender, you're an idealist. They're not. All they know now is that they're safe. Little shouting won't hurt. You think too much. I was safe on Mars. The first Earthmen on Mars. We're going to celebrate. <laughs> Yahoo! X minus one was picked up. The network formed a partnership with the aforementioned sci-fi magazines to choose stories for adaptation. The magazines would plug the show, and the show would mention the magazine during the introduction. X-1 debuted on Sunday, April 24, 1955. Its scheduling was erratic. NBC had been long known for impatience with new programs. If a series wasn't generating big numbers and sponsors straight away, NBC often dropped or moved the show. Unfairly, the onus was on Street and Smith and their magazines to make X-1 profitable. By September 5, 1957, the show was airing Thursday evenings at 8.05 p.m. Eastern Time. It was NBC's only dramatic offering of the evening. Fittingly, the episode was called Saucer of Loneliness. Countdown for blastoff. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of a future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus Tonight, Saucer of Loneliness by Theodore Sturgeon. But first, hear this. Hello, I'm Dorothy Olson, singing school teacher on NBC's big weekday musical show, Bandstand. But right now, I'd like to talk to you parents. I'd like to ask you a few questions as you're getting ready to send your youngsters back to school. Are you helping your child get the most out of his school? Do you make his home conditions favorable enough for him to do his homework? Do you show an interest in his schoolwork? Remember, your child's success in school and later on in life 
depends to a large degree on your attitude towards his schooling today. And there's another important thing. Everyone needs a good send-off in the morning, and that goes for children, too. Be sure your children have a substantial breakfast and a cheery goodbye before they head for school each day. Remember, you can't expect your child to do it all himself. Encourage him in his schooling, both in your attitude and in your actions as he goes back to school this fall. Now, X minus one. The story, Saucer of Loneliness by Theodore Sturgeon. My name is Jason Benaiades. I'm a newspaper reporter, 31 years old. I write poetry, but I don't show it to anybody because they might laugh. The things I write about are very important to me. I was an only child and never went much with girls because I'm too ugly and too sensitive and they used to hurt me. I live alone. It isn't much fun. I'm not painting this picture of myself to get sympathy. I don't need it, but... It's important you should know the kind of person I am, otherwise you won't understand what I'm going to tell you about. Tonight, the 25th of June, 1962. I was down on the beach. There was a girl out there in the surf, alone, struggling. I plunged in after her, got her, brought her ashore, and carried her where a dune was between us and the water. Then I rubbed her wrists. She had a pale, beautiful face with ancient, bottomless blue eyes. She opened them and looked at me after a moment. It's all, it's all right now. Here, put my coat over you. Why couldn't you leave me alone? I couldn't. I couldn't. Why? Because it's important to me. I, I suppose you want to know why I did it. No, no, I know. Oh, how could you know? Maybe I know what it means to be lonely. Oh, oh that. That's it, isn't it? Oh, oh I don't know. I, just I say, just, don't I, be afraid. I've, I've been looking for you for a long time. Looking for me? All my life. How did you know? I don't believe it's you. It's true. I found your message. You found my message? Yes. Oh. See, you see, there's nothing to be afraid of, not anymore. Just, just rest. Yes. I, I, I'd like to rest for a while. She didn't remember it, of course, but I was one of the reporters who had covered the story when it first happened, five years ago. I'll never forget that day. I was working the police blotter. It was a quiet summer afternoon when they brought her in. Two big cops in blue uniform. All right. Come on now, girlie. Come on. All right. We understand. Take it easy now. No, please. Just let me go. Disturbing the peace. This that Central Park call? Yeah, this is it. I thought you radioed there was a near riot up there. Well, you should have seen the place. All right, give me the report. Well, me and Bennett got up there. There was a mob of people all surrounding this girl, see? So we bust through, and there, in the middle of maybe 600 people, she's lying there, sort of uh, in a faint. Mm -hmm. I asked a couple of people what the difficulty was. They tell me it's a flying saucer, you see? So I tell... Uh, what? The flying saucer. What is it, Miss Gag? It happened. It did, eh? Suppose you tell me your version. Well, I was standing in the park, and I looked up, and, and there it was. Describe it. Well, it was beautiful. It, it was golden with a, with a dusty finish like, well, like an unripe Concord grape. And, 
It made a faint sound, a chord of two tones, and it circled over my head like some great round hummingbird. Go on. Well, other people must have seen it because they were all looking at me and pointing, and I saw one man cross himself, and, and then it came down and touched me and, and spoke to me. This flying saucer spoke to you? Yes. Um, just what did it say to you? I said, what did it say? I, I can't tell you. A secret, huh? Yes. I see. Connolly, this girl's for Bellevue. Well, Sergeant, the plain fact is that it happened just like that. Ten witnesses all agree it did. Are you trying to tell me there was such a thing as this Warren hummingbird of a saucer? Oh, there was that, Sergeant. And just how do you know, Connolly? We got the thing out in a squad car. Bennett is bringing it in right now, see? About 36 inches across it is and covered with strange markings. Holy mackerel, did you call the bomb squad? I didn't think of it. Well, think of it, man. This may be some kind of atomic weapon the Reds are sending over. I'll turn it over to ballistics. Never mind about ballistics. Call the FBI. Tell them what we got. to X-1 and Saucer of Loneliness. Now, miss, let me be very frank. I'm not a policeman. I'm a security agent. That means I deal with problems that affect the security of our country. Do you understand? Yes. Now, we've examined this flying saucer enough to know it is not of American manufacture. It also possesses an extremely high radioactive count. That means it was in an area where radioactive materials are in great abundance, such as an area where atom bombs are made. That's why we want to know the message you received from the saucer. There was no message. You just made it up? Yes. I'm afraid you're lying. There is a communications device on the saucer, and many people heard it make some sound as it touched you. Please, just leave me alone. All you have to do is tell us what the saucer said, and you can go home, and we won't ever bother you again. No. Well, gentlemen, we'll get nothing out of her. I don't believe she really knows what that humming noise was. You better have a psychiatrist examine her. We spent a good deal of time on past Breaking Walls episodes discussing Hollywood Radio's famed actors. There was a concurrent, equally talented group of New York actors, like Bob Hastings, those were great days. Radio actors were awfully good, very good, and a lot of them came out here and did well. Frank Lovejoy, Mason Adams now, did Lou Grant. Of course, I go back to Arnold Moss, Everett Sloan, all oh, the people I, Bill Quinn, uh, the people actors. I worked with in radio, Lucille Wall. Big New York contingent. Oh, yes. A lot of those... Uh, yes. I, a lot of them New York. I knew some of the Chicago people. Fran Carlin, I mm -hmm. think, was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Casey Adams, do those names mean anything yes, to you? Yes, Vivian Smolin. Vi oh, well, Vivian, I knew very, very yes. well. Vivian was on Our Bond, the thing with Madge Tucker. Sharita Bauer, who had, yes. uh, oh, I knew we grew up together. Legendary lady oh, yes, in uh, yes. soap operas. Yes, because I think Guiding Light probably was one of the longest. But she was on radio and then moved she into TV. She went from the radio yeah. to the TV and mm -hmm. passed away a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Very dear friend. As a matter of fact, I spoke to her. I used to call her when she was ill. But uh, as you know, I mean, you research it all. They're wonderful actors. You appeared on many other radio broadcasts as well. I oh. think you must have done some things on uh, 
NBC later had a science fiction series called X Minus One. Ah, yes, did a number of those. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I think the director, there was Harry Junkin and then Danny Sutter, who I think was from Chicago mm -hmm. originally and had been a radio actor in Chicago, directed many of them that I did. But that was a very interesting show. Bob Hastings spoke of Arnold Moss. Incidentally, uh, I played a great many of the heavies in radio. I got killed regularly four or five times a week. And uh, when these things were happening, my son was then about two, two and a half years old, and he would listen. We had a nurse at the time taking care of Jeff, and she would tell my wife to get me immediately before I left the station to call home to assure Jeff that I was all right, that I really hadn't been killed. There was Jan Minor. Whoever was out of his way when it's time for him to speak, he'd get to that side of the mic because mm -hmm. they were directional mics, I guess you call them. Well, both sides worked. But he'd have to move over because we, well, we worked in front of that microphone with arms flinging. And yeah. many times your arm would fling and the script would go <laughs> flying all over the studio and you'd have to run to the other side to read off the, the other person's script. John Gibson. I don't think I'm second to anybody in volume of shows as an actor. I do believe that I have done somewhere over 10,000 radio shows or appearances, if you want to call them, or whatever, and I am still very nervous. People assume that radio was comparatively easy, as I do, standing in a well-lighted studio with a nice script in front of you and all you have to do is read the lines. Right. But you can say some awfully strange things by mistake. <laughs> Your tongue can get twisted. As you know, there have been some classic. <laughs> I Is begin it? to get the picture. <laughs> Joe Julian. You were involved with soaps, weren't you, Joe? Oh, yes. I name it, I probably was on it. One of the shows that you were on for a long period of time was Lorenzo Jones. What part did you play? Well, I played part of Sandy. He was a young kid who lived next door to Lorenzo and worshipped Lorenzo. Well, I think the best soap opera on the air. It certainly was the funniest. I think you'll have to agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> it had genuine humor and wit, charm. The character of Lorenzo was a would-be inventor. He was always inventing things that were almost practical, but not quite. Yeah. Like yeah. the three-spout teapot for strong, weak, and medium tea. <laughs> <laughs> Once he invented a gadget for his automobile, he had a recording thing in it so that if you went over a certain speed limit, a voice would come snarling out of the loudspeaker saying, Take it easy, butt! <laughs> Jackson Beck. You're one of that breed that doubled as uh, actor and radio announcer. Which were you applying for when you were making those rounds? I applied. Originally, I started out as an actor. Some impersonations, which I no longer do, of people you never heard of anyway because they're all dead and gone <laughs> 30 years. But I've always figured out announcing was just another facet of acting anyway. You act the part of a salesman, and that's what announcing really is. Mandel Kramer. Nothing like that exists anymore. In the old days, the third floor at NBC was where everybody congregated. There were Colby's, which is non-existent now. Colby's was the restaurant at CBS, 485 Madison Avenue. So if you wanted to meet any of your friends or just find out what was going on, you just ended up on the third floor of NBC over at Colby's, and you kind of got the word there. It was all passed on. Everybody congregated there, and it was social. And also, there was a good chance to nab a director as he walked through the, you know, from sure. one studio to another, because the third floor was where a great many of the dramatic shows came from, from the studios on the third floor. But radio was really the, my first love, you know. The great camaraderie that existed in radio in the early days, before your time, Dick, when there was a, a relatively small 
number of us, I don't know how many exactly, but a fairly small group of actors who were fortunate enough to be in demand most of the time. You could work and did work seven days a week. Another oft-heavy was Larry Haynes. The one thing about radio, which is different than television, was that you had a certain anonymity, I believe is the word, where you could be on 10 shows a day and walk down Broadway in 42nd, and mm -hmm. nobody would recognize you. Did anybody ever recognize you because of your voice, yes. you know, in social? Any, uh, any as a matter of fact, quite recently, I was shocked. I almost forgot what I was doing. I was placing a call at a booth. I dialed the operator and asked for a number, and she said, yes, just one moment, Mr. Haynes. <laughs> no fool. I almost fell in the I would have been less surprised if she had said, Mr. Bergman. <laughs> well, apparently she was an old radio fan. Yeah, I guess so. But that amazed me. That really amazed me. And of course, the husband-wife team of Mary Jane Higby and Guy Sorrell. Mary Jane, was there any feeling, any difference in feeling on the part of the actor or actress in doing a nighttime show such as Lux or Perry Mason from a daytime show, did it seem more important to you in oh, any way? Yes, I don't think anyone took the daytime serials, or very few people took them seriously. The first serious moment might be when you counted the pages of your script to be sure they were in the right order just before you went on the air. There was a marked difference between a beginner in radio and one who'd been at it a long time. The beginner would look through his pages to see if he was in a lot of the script, and he was in a lot of the script, he was delighted. Whereas the old-timer would look through and said, oh, I'm through on page one, isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> because he was getting paid just as much. <laughs> then, of course, the nighttime shows, I used to do a lot of cavalcades, Cavalcade of America. That, of course, was, a, I suppose, the plushiest of them all. The actors would all wear dinner jackets, tuxedos, evening dresses, and it was a very elaborate production with an audience and everything, and lights and everything else. There was one actor who, usually in radio, always marked his script, because we all marked our scripts, we made cuts in pencil or pen, and he was accustomed to making his cuts with a red pencil, and uh, he'd never been on the cavalcade before. He was on the air, and suddenly the lights went down, and red lights came up on the stage. <laughs> oh, I can guess what would happen then. Well, you know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> the, red, the red lights just drained all the red from his script. He didn't know what was cut, what wasn't cut. He couldn't see his markings. Oh, he was in a mess. He finally had to drop his script completely and read over somebody else's shoulder. These are just some of the people who appeared on countless shows originating from New York during radio's golden age. Many of them were able to make the transition to TV. Many others weren't. Once X-1 signed off at 8.30, Nightline signed on for 90 minutes. News had become more valuable than drama in prime time. X-1 would be canceled after the January 9, 1958 broadcast. They took her to the city hospital and placed her in a guarded room. Whenever the door opened, she could see the policeman outside. The door opened quite often. There were a lot of important people, some in army uniforms who came up from Washington just to see her and talk to her. A few days later, she was released from the hospital and returned to court to be tried on the disorderly conduct charge. They found her guilty and fined her $15 and turned her loose. When she walked out of the courtroom, she was handed a subpoena to appear before a congressional committee in a private session. She answered all their questions except one. My newspaper sent me to cover the hearing. Now, young lady, 
I want to remind you that I am a senator of the United States and empowered by the people of this country to ask questions relating to matters of security. Do you understand? Yes. Your name is Janet Boyce, is it not? I told you that. Now, this flying saucer, you, you said it talked to you. You did say that, didn't you? Yes. And then you denied it? Yes. Why? Because I was tired of answering questions. Young woman, let me put something to you squarely. Uh, by the way, I think if there are members of the press here, I can divulge a rather spectacular piece of information to you. <clears throat> this flying saucer has been thoroughly examined and analyzed. And I wish to inform the people of this great nation that it definitely, I repeat, it definitely did not originate on this planet. The furor was fantastic, and the contempt trial that followed was spectacular. She was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. Six months ago, she was released. I found out she'd gotten a job cleaning at night in offices and stores down near the beachfront. There weren't many to clean, but that meant there weren't many people to remember her face from the newspapers. I tracked her down and caught up with her in a one-armed coffee joint about four in the morning. Uh, excuse me, miss. Mind, uh, mind if I sit here? No. Which are you, security, newspapers, or just somebody out for a good time? You're pretty bitter, aren't you? Shouldn't I be? I guess you should. Well, my name's uh, Jason Benaides. I'm with a newspaper. Well, it's been nice meeting you. I have to go now. Just a minute. Now, please. Look, look. Just... look. I, I can't blame you. Please tell me how it's been. So you can write about it? I promise you I won't write anything you don't want me to write. Okay. You want to know how it's been? I'll tell you. Right after I got out of jail, I met a man at a restaurant. A nice man. He asked me for a date. I spent every cent I had on a red handbag to go with my red shoes. And I was very excited about the date. We went to a movie. Afterward, he didn't even try to kiss me or anything. He just wanted to know what the flying saucer had told me. Oh, I didn't say anything. I just went home and cried all night. That was it? Oh, no. I had another date. I get pretty lonely. This time, they arrested the man I was with. He was a Russian agent. I'm sorry. Now will you go away and leave me alone? Yes. Aren't you going to ask me the big question? No. Everybody does. Not me. Oh, you will sooner or later. Maybe. Look, can I take you home? No. Can I see you again? Look, please, I just... Please, please. Oh, I don't know. I'm afraid to let myself like anyone. Try me. Make it your last chance. Trust me. Will you? I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe. I'll wait here for you tomorrow night. All right. The next night, I went back to the coffee joint to wait for her. I knew she got through about four in the morning, and... I got there about 15 minutes early. Mr. Benaides? Yeah. Say, you're the 
Chief of security section, aren't you? You have a good memory. You mind if I sit down? Well, I'm, I'm expecting somebody. Yes, I know. Oh, I see. I'd like to talk to you. All right. Go ahead. You probably know that we've been trying to gain the confidence of this girl for some years now. Yes. We have reason to believe that this girl is a courier for some alien power. On what do you base that? Well, there was the incident of the saucer, of course. We've definitely established that it came from some other planet. And recently, she's been throwing messages inside bottles into the ocean. Huh? What sort of messages? They're always the same. I have one right here. You're welcome to read it and see if it makes any sense. We've had every decoding expert in the service trying to break it, but we can't seem to find the key. Hmm, I see. She's thrown literally hundreds of these messages and bottles into the sea. We've got many of them, but not all, naturally. What we're most interested in is locating the contact. Naturally. That's where you fit in. We'd like you to gain this girl's confidence even further. Try to find out just what these messages mean. And beyond that, what the saucer said to her. You'll be doing us a favor. And your country a great service. You're certain this is some subversive activity on her part? How else can you explain the fact that she won't tell us a secret? Maybe because it's hers. Everybody has a right to have something of his own. Are you trying to tell me that you won't cooperate? I didn't say that. I'd like to remind you, Mr. Beniades, that you have a duty to us. I know that. I also have a duty to myself and to God. Now, if you'll excuse me. I folded the bottle message and put it in my pocket and waited for it to show up. The minutes went by and the hours... And I knew she wasn't coming. Or she had come and seen me with the chief and changed her mind. That's when I left the cafe and walked down to the beach. That's when I had dragged her out of the surf before she could follow one of her bottles into the water. Oh, how, how do you feel now? Uh, you cold? Why should you care? Well, I do. Is that why you were sitting with the security chief in the cafe? Look, I didn't arrange that meeting. He asked me to spy on you. I suppose he told you about the bottles. Yes. <laughs> Oh, I wonder how much of the taxpayers' money they've spent gathering them up. What they wanted was a new weapon, you see. Some super scientific super science from some alien super race. <laughs> science, that's all they think of. Well, it's pretty important. Would it have ever occurred to them that this super race from another planet might have super feelings or, or super longings or super loneliness? Oh. oh, no, all they think about is weapons. Well, isn't it time you asked me what the saucer said? No, no. Well, they all ask me. I don't have to ask you. I know. You know? Yeah. Let me read it to you. There is in certain living souls a quality of loneliness unspeakable. So great it must be shared, as company is shared by lesser beings. Such a loneliness is mine. So know by this that in immensity there is one lonelier than you. How did you know? Well, it's the message you put in the bottles. The same message that some lonely, strange being in some other world put into a bottle. Only his bottle was a flying saucer and sent across space to you. You knew it. I'm lonely, too. Look at me. I've never had the love of a woman. They, they think I'm pretty ugly. 
I have beautiful thoughts in my head, but I write trash. <laughs> I have this nose. Oh, you're not ugly. You know, I... I don't feel ugly right now. Say it again. The message from the saucer. Know by this, that in immensity, there is one lonelier than you. I wonder if whoever first wrote it has found someone. I think perhaps he has. Fred Collins speaking, and I'll have another word for you about X minus one in a moment. I like to look deep into the human heart with my camera. So speaks Margaret Burke White, one of the outstanding photographers of our time. Perhaps you remember one of her favorite pictures, the tremendously moving photograph of two South African gold miners sweltering in dank airlessness deep under Africa's green hills. We agree with Miss White that all the sorrow of mankind is in the miners' eyes. And what if those miners could speak? What is the story behind their sorrow? This is the objective of the program we call Life and the World, to add new dimensions in sound to the picture stories in each week's issue of Life magazine, to bring you the actual voices of the people most intimately associated with stories of human interest gathered from the four corners of the earth. This is Frank Blair inviting you to keep a rendezvous with life and the world every weeknight over most of these NBC stations. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features the Gordon R. Dixon short story, Robots Are Nice. To Jim Harvey, at least, robots weren't the least bit nice. He had a feeling they had something up their sleeve valves, and in time he found out what it was. Galaxy Magazine, on your newsstand today. Tonight, X-1 has brought you Saucer of Loneliness, a story written by Theodore Sturgeon and adapted for radio by George Lefferts. Featured in our cast were Lynn Cook as Jason Beniades and Lydia Bruce as the girl. Others in our cast were Joseph Bell, Harvey Hayes, Ross Martin, and Roger DeCoven. This is Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by George Voutsas and is an NBC Radio Network production. You'll be on the right line for exciting nighttime entertainment when you hear Nightline tonight over most of these NBC stations. Just a few moments from the Cinderella Hour, and now for the climax of the 1958 Mr. Pageant, here's Bert Parks on the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, the time is fast approaching when we will have the decision as to the title of Miss America. The announcement we're going to make, one will be the first runner-up, the other will be Miss America. The first... Runner up, Jody Elizabeth Shattuck, Miss Georgia, 
On Saturday, September 7, 1957, Marilyn Van Derber was crowned 1958's Miss America in Atlantic City. She was a 20-year-old Phi Beta Kappa scholar at the University of Colorado. She later moved to New York City, becoming the TV spokeswoman for AT&T's Bell Telephone Hour, and hosted 10 episodes of Candid Camera, as well as five Miss America pageants. In 1975, she established the Marilyn Van Derber Motivational Institute. May I ask you your reactions at this moment, Ms. Clanter? I certainly hope that I will be as good a Miss America as Mary McKnight has been. Thank you, and God bless you all. And now, Miss America of 1958, there is the runway. There are your subjects. Please to join us. When she was 53, she revealed herself to be the victim of incestual abuse from her father. Her story was featured on the cover of People magazine on June 10, 1991. She and her husband Angel invested in adult incest survivor program at the Kempe Center and founded the Survivors United Network. Monday, September 9th, President Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act of 1957. The law was the first civil rights legislation since 1875. Deep South Democrat leaders were resisting desegregation. In this midst, Eisenhower proposed a civil rights bill designed to provide federal protection for African-American voting rights against state and local law. The law also established a U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and a Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. That day, the Hattie Cotton Elementary School in Nashville, Tennessee, admitted one African-American student, Patricia Watson. She was six years old. Shortly after midnight on September 10th, dynamite was set off at the east end of the school's entrance hall. It tore down walls and knocked out every window, forcing the school to close for nine days. When it reopened, Patricia's mother had her transferred to an all-black school. The act was condemned by Nashville Police Chief Douglas E. Hasse, who offered $7,000 in a cash reward for any information. Six suspects were detained, but no one was ever charged. Biography and sound began when NBC newsman Joseph O. Myers was assigned to produce a documentary on Winston Churchill for his 80th birthday on November 30, 1954. He felt blending actualities of the subject's voice with recollections of his friends, associates, and antagonists could prove successful. A vast resource was available at NBC. Myers had been building a tape library of interview clips since 1949. In five years, 
more than 150,000 historic statements have been recorded and indexed. Myers had Bennett Cerf tell Churchill anecdotes, Laurence Olivier and Lynn Fontaine read from British poetry, and sound effects and music were added for drama. Myers's finished product was cheered around the industry. He had done the impossible, said Radio Life, turning people's attention once more to radio. The clamor for another show was immediate and loud. A month later, Myers answered with a piece on Ernest Hemingway, again to great acclaim. A biography of Gertrude Lawrence followed in another month, and in February, it was decided to run the series weekly. On Tuesday, September 10, 1957, at 9.05 Eastern Time, biography and sound, Danny Kay, took to the air over NBC. This is Walter O'Keefe, bringing you in the next hour a special Nightline feature well-known to listeners of NBC Radio. That would be another in our award-winning series of biographies and sound. Everything ready? I don't know whether we ought to play it or not. But for heaven's sakes, why not? Because I think people will begin to believe that we're on the show merely to talk about me, and that is completely true. No argument about that, Danny Kay, for our subject tonight is you. The Prince of Clowns, the story of a merry madcap, another in the transcribed series of biographies and sound. Within the next 55 minutes, the voices of those who know best, that startling combination of the meek and the mad, Danny Kaye. Your narrator, Walter O'Keefe. Where does the story of an extraordinary talent really begin? Perhaps with Danny Kaye as a youngster, hating regimentation as he moved through the quick and dreary scenes of childhood. Or maybe from the first explosive moment he excited critics and conquered every ermine on Broadway. Or perhaps it really doesn't begin until the day a clown turned ambassador traveled over half the world playing Pied Piper to 40 million youngsters. Danny has a theory that people become not what they want to become, but what they must become. Bob McElwain, close friend and business associates, he feels that there's some inner drive and inclination within everyone which directs them in the course that their careers follow. He himself wanted to be a doctor, and he still has a deep and abiding interest in medicine. There's nothing he would rather do than watch a difficult operation. But uh, he became an entertainer, he feels, because he had the need to make people laugh and to amuse others, and... Uh, that there was actually nothing else he could have become or ever would be. Given name, David Daniel Kaminsky, introduced on this mortal stage during the latter hours of a chill January day in 1913, the place, New York. Hey, watch your language, Cupid. <laughs> what do you mean, New York? It's Brooklyn. Born on the corner of Abraham and Strauss. <laughs> do you know Brooklyn? Bushwick Avenue? Decalbe Avenue? <laughs> Brighton Beach. You ever been to Brooklyn? So don't come to Brooklyn. Who needs you? Pardon, a geographical error. For a moment, we forgot New York is really only a suburb. Brooklyn, it is. And in a neighborhood so tough that the wags used to say if you had teeth, you were a sissy. We lived in an apartment and house in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. Larry Kay, Danny's oldest brother, 
It was a poor neighborhood. There were ordinary people, working people. My dad was a designer and was pretty rough going for a while, for quite some while. But uh, we were a happy family. Danny always did have a very nice voice and he sang pretty well. In fact, I think he took after my mother and father who were not entertainers, but uh, they were a pretty jolly couple and any time they had parties or anything like that, they were the life of the party, so to speak. And he sort of took after them a little bit. No silver spoons in the K household. Always an imaginative child with an early gift for mimicry, Danny is the only theatrical product anywhere in his family before and since. In the early days, life focused on the candy store down the block and public school 149. 149 is the school for me. Drives away all adversity. Steady and true, we'll be to you. Loyal all to 149. Rah, 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 raise on high the red and white. Cheer it with all your might. Hey, good old 149. Hooray for 149, I remember it well. Dr. Lou Eisen, he's known Danny since they were both six years old. In school, he was on a junior varsity in swimming. He did pole vaulting, track, and uh, baseball. Loved to catch, be a catcher. We used to go out on dates together and uh, parties. We used to entertain at parties, and we enjoyed singing. And uh, we began to harmonize and singing in social clubs and various functions. We belonged to a fraternity. We used to sing there. We won silver loving cups. We had a lot of fun as kids. Uh, one particular thing, uh, when uh, we were about 18, I think it was, we were going down a uh, Broadway to make our way, you know, and uh, see agents you know, to get bookings for jobs and so forth. And we'd sit in the train, and uh, it was comfortably crowded with a few people standing around. And we'd be uh, sitting there, just minding our own business. And then the train would come into a tunnel, you see, and it gets deathly quiet at that particular time. All of the hum is gone, talking is gone. There's a hush in the train. And he let out an earth-piercing scream. So one guy jumped up on a fan. <laughs> I was so embarrassed, I had to run out of the train. He died laughing. But there was not always laughter. There were those awful days of anguish when Danny's mother suddenly died. He was only 13 years old. The boy began to lean heavily on his father. He had a very rare and understanding father. Sylvia Fine Kay, Danny's wife. And where other parents might have um, needled him about going to work or getting a job, Danny's father somehow sensed that Danny needed to find himself. Danny says he would sometimes wake up and find $5 under his pillow. Now, for Danny's father to leave $5 under his pillow at that time was a great deal of money. And when neighbors or relatives would say to Danny's father, what about this boy of yours who's grown up and looks strong and healthy? What's he doing sleeping all morning, you know, and doing nothing at all? Danny's father would say, well, I make believe he's going to college. And pretty soon he'll make up his mind what he wants to do. Danny tried everything. He went to work for a friend of his father's, but he felt trapped and hated it. 
he fizzled as an insurance underwriter, a $40,000 mistake didn't help any. Finally, Danny gravitated toward the Borst circuit, the unofficial name which Broadway long ago pinned on a chain of summer hotels in the Catskills. Difficult to work, they are, but an extraordinary training ground for entertainers. One of them, the White Row Hotel. I was a social director at this place, and Danny had come up as a singing act. Phil Goldfarb, who became one of Danny's closest friends. In this particular place, uh, we were on tap uh, 24 hours a day. We were always working, particularly on rainy days or if... uh, Things got a little rough and the weather was bad. We had to put that much effort into uh, into our work in order to keep the people there. Many times, uh, uh, Danny had liked to uh, used to like to sleep kind of late, and uh, if uh, it looked pretty bad in the morning, up came the uh, the boss, and uh, he would uh, knock on our door and he'd say, "Get up! Uh, you got to pep up." the crowd. We did a lot of crazy things. I would chase him through the uh, dining room while people were trying to have their noonday meal. He uh, would put on a chef's hat or a cook's hat and I would take the chef's hat and a meat cleaver and just run right through for a laugh, go right through the dining room and then come back again into the kitchen. Anything which happened within eye shot or earshot became material for Danny's wacky sense of humor. During his fourth season on the wheel, Kay joined the vaudeville troupe, played 48 one-night stands to the West Coast, and then toured the Orient. That was La Vie Paris. We can gently call it the biggest turkey with dressing on the road. Dave Harvey, head man in the act, the three Terps of Koreans. Our work as a trio, trio Harvey, Young, and Kay, in La Vie Paris was... uh, Uh, rather like uh, doubling in brass. We were originally a a dancing trio, but we did bits, everything imaginable. Danny did straight and comic. I did straight and comic. As a matter of fact, we uh, did 14 changes each show. Danny's natural sense of comedy just couldn't be held down. And it would burst out and come forth in the funniest places. When we first arrived in Tokyo, after rehearsal one night, Danny and I went out to get some scrambled eggs and finally found a restaurant open. We went in and tried to make ourselves understood that we wanted some eggs. We drew pictures and showed them with our hands what we wanted. So finally, uh, I went into my act and scratched the floor and cackled, cackled, uh, sat down, Danny flapped his hands and crowed, got up, said, oh, so I saw us. Ah, yes, yes, you know what we got, don't you? Fried chicken. Confronted with non-English speaking audiences, as well as waiters, it was here that Danny developed the pantomiming art and a whole arsenal of face-making techniques. Terror on the Air is an auditory escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be 
be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. At 10.45 Central Time on the morning of September 11, 1957, Howard Miller signed on from WBBM with 15 minutes of music and an interview with Steve Allen. Wrigley's Spearmint Gum presents The Howard Miller Show. Now here with music on records is Howard Miller. Well, thank you very much, Joe Foss, and once again for Wrigley Spearman Chewing Gum Coast to Coast with a wonderful star of phonograph records, a creator of uh, great material in the world of literature, and a general handyman around the house, I presume, because Steve, of course, is married to the very charming and lovely Miss Jane Meadows. Now, in just a moment, you're going to have an opportunity of meeting one of America's outstanding show personalities, Steve Allen, and listening to his new record, Gotta Have Something in the Bank, Frank. But first, let's salute Jimmy Dorsey. Jimmy Dorsey's orchestra, Dix DeBeal, conducts June night. Howard Miller was born on December 7, 1912, in Chicago. From 1945 through 1949, he was WIND's program director before beginning an 18-year run as the Windy City's top-rated morning DJ. In between, he acted in Jamboree, Senior Prom, and the big beat. In September of 1957, Steve Allen was coming off starring in the Benny Goodman story. He left The Tonight Show in January after three successful years when NBC asked Allen to focus on his Sunday primetime Steve Allen show. By then, Allen was famous as a humorist, musician, MC, and actor. He was promoting his new song, Gotta Have Something in the Bank, Frank, when he spoke to Miller. The fine Jimmy Dorsey aggregation, and of course a classic from 25 years ago that's been revived now under the baton of uh, young one Mr. Dick Stabile called June Knight. I had a rather cute personal experience this morning that I thought I'd pass along to you in lieu of a commercial. An old buddy of mine from high school days some 20 years ago was telling me the story of the last few years of his life. He's a traveling salesman. So I said, well, you must be a pretty good uh, customer for the automobile companies then because I presume you spend a great many hours on the rubber on America's highways. And he said, well, you probably won't believe it, Howard, but I drive about $65,000 a year or 65,000 miles a year and make about $55,000 driving. So I said, well, that's probably better than the average cab driver, but uh, how do you relieve the boredom of driving all those miles? And he said, well, surprisingly enough, I do what you frequently tell the people to do, to chew Wrigley Spearmint chewing gum, and I presume that it's usually Wrigley Spearmint that he chews because that's the best gum there is. Now, for those of you who do spend a great many hours and miles behind a wheel... 
Let me suggest that it's a fine way to keep alert. It'll keep you relaxed. It always moistens your mouth, of course, and keeps your breath sweet. Helps to clean your teeth. But it's mostly the boredom that it relieves behind the wheel. So if you're in your automobile quite a few hours like this young gentleman, why don't you plan like he does to enjoy Wrigley Spearmint and make the miles roll by. Wrigley Spearmint Chewing Gum. Well, most of the secretarial staff of CBS is in our office or studio this morning. Quite obviously not to see me because I'm here every day, but apparently to welcome with us Steve Allen, a great star of show business. Steve, it's wonderful having you on our show. Well, thank you very much, Howard. Very nice to be here. Now, I don't know which tack to take in talking to you, whether we should go back uh, and hearken to your disc jockey days out in California and here in Chicago, whether we should talk to you as the serious composer of music and performer, or whether we should talk about novelty things like Gotta Have Something in the Bank, Frank. Well, you can always talk to me as an old CBS man, you know. An old CBS man. I think probably maybe we should concern ourselves largely with those three letters, shouldn't we? Although your NBC <laughs> show, of course, is great. Steve, um, how do you explain the fact that uh, your approach to music is generally so serious, and yet it took a novelty thing like that to really, like this current one, to branch out and be a tremendously big hit coast to coast? Well, I think it's not too surprising, Howard, uh, musical tastes being what they are and also being different in the album field, as you know so well. When I do an album, I usually do the kind of music that I uh, I sort of like to hear. Uh, I like to use a lot of violins and play a kind of uh, moody piano and play great old ballads, usually from the 30s and 40s. But, of course, uh, a record of that sort is almost never in the, oh, even in the top 100 these days. Yes. So uh, I restrict the pretty things to albums, and uh, we'll try any crazy thing on the singles. Well, of course, now your current album for Coral, Romantic Rendezvous, is getting a tremendous play by disc jockeys. So apparently the fellows feel very much like uh, you do, Steve, that that would be the preference, of course, of, of the fellows who play the music. But, of course, we've got to go along with the commercial aspect of the sure. thing. Where did you get this material? Got to have something in the bank, Frank. Did you discover it? No, it was presented to me by uh, Bob Thiel over at Coral. It was written by uh, Bob Hilliard... And, uh... Garson. Yeah. The only reason I know is it's written on the sheet in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, the production of the thing itself, I presume, was your creation, was it not, Steve? Uh, in this case, no, Howard. Usually on my records I have a, a word or two to say about the arrangement. But in this case, the arrangement was done and was presented to me on a little demonstration record. I don't know who the singer was on the demonstration, but he did a very fine job of it. And, in fact, I said, why do you need me? And they said, well, let's do it anyway. So, so <laughs> Why we... did you show up, huh? <laughs> well, probably that's a pretty good lead for the next question, Steve. It's um, always amazed me, and it amazes most people, how you have time in just the average 24 hours to achieve all the things you have achieved in show business. What does your life consist of daily-wise? Well, actually, uh, the secret, Howard, if there is any, is that I don't try to do all this stuff in, one, uh, in any one 24-hour period. Uh, most of the things I do outside of the Sunday show are actually sidelines. Uh, I make maybe three or four albums a year, and an album, as you know, takes just one or two afternoons to uh, turn out. Uh, I write a few songs, but it only takes maybe half hour to write the average song these days, and a lot of them sound like it, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, your average Sunday show takes you how many hours a week to produce? Well, that's pretty much a full-time job. I have Mondays and Tuesdays off, and then from Wednesday right on through to Sunday. It's, uh, it's, it's a good eight-hour day. So that yeah. means that you can write books, write plays, write music, and travel to California on Monday and Tuesday. <laughs> what about the motion picture, Steve? Uh, you had good success with the Benny Goodman story. Does your contract now provide for future motion picture work, or is there just not enough time? 
Well, uh, basically, it's a time problem. I, uh, from time to time, receive very tempting offers uh, to do other pictures, Howard, but uh, it was really a pretty back-breaking struggle to uh, do the Goodman picture while I was doing television. I wouldn't want to have to work that hard again. Uh, however, uh, I would like to do my television show more frequently from the coast, uh, and under those circumstances, I could work in another picture. It takes usually about maybe nine or ten weeks these yes. days to do a picture. Well, of course, there are a lot of people out in the West Coast listening right now. Maybe this would be a nice time to favor them with the statement as to why you'd like to do more shows out on the West Coast. What is there about the coast that lends itself to the charm of production and television, Steve? Well, actually, uh, it's just about as easy to do our show in uh, New York, so it isn't so much that. It's just I dig sunshine and uh, swimming pools. It's a, <laughs> and there's a few more of them out there this time of year, certainly, than there are in New York. That's right. I wouldn't want the um, interview to go by without at least talking for a moment, dwelling on the subject of your very charming wife, Jane. Would you please give to her my best love? I met she and her sister when they were in town here not too long ago. Yes, they told me. I'll certainly do that, Howard. Wonderful, wonderful gals. Jane's expecting, you know, about the first of November. Yeah. Tell me about that. Uh, this is a real exciting thing. It'd be wonderful if it could happen on the Sunday night show. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that you could make the announcement on the show, Steve. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> you see what I mean? With television, what it is these days, you can't tell, you know? Well, it's probably even to happen that way. Steve, uh, in motion picture work, now, you have been associated with uh, the biographical sketch of um, Goodman, or autobiographical. What about uh, other serious roles? Had you ever thought uh, yourself in terms of a dramatic portrayer of parts? Most of your skits, of course, on Sunday are uh, comedy. What about serious stuff? Well, I had done a couple of uh, pictures before the Goodman uh, thing, but they were all, as you say, in the comedy area. I've done uh, a little television dramatic work that uh, turned out to be serious. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't intended to be, according to the uh, note by the scriptwriter, I presume. <laughs> How many writers do you have to employ in your work, um, Steve? I know a lot of this stuff, of course, you contribute because it's ad-lib stuff, but is there a... Uh, regular staff of writers who contribute to you every week and then you screen the stuff? Uh, well, yes, Howard. Uh, on the old Tonight Show, the old Tonight Show is 95% ad-lib, but it, the uh, figures are just about reversed on Sunday. The Sunday show is 95% written, and we have, uh, well, counting myself, we have six fellas writing it now. That many. So it's pretty much of a practiced ad-lib that you get across to the American public on Sundays. Uh, yeah, it's all pretty well uh, rehearsed. Well, in view of the fact that, of course, this interview is on CBS, I would certainly want you to give my best regards to Ed Sullivan, too, Steve, if you will, <laughs> please. And uh, we'll be watching you both uh, every Sunday night. Now, let's listen to um, Steve's record. And we have had it on a number of times, Steve, both network and, of course, many, many times at the local level. It is already a big hit here in the field of the Midwest, and I'm sure that it will be nationally for you, too. Thank Steve you, Allen and his choral recording, Gotta Have Something in the Bank, Frank. What do you say, Frankie? I say, baby, I love you, but every time I say I do, you come back with words so true. You gotta have something in the bank, Frank. Gotta have something in the bank, Frank. You gotta have time we parked the car underneath the loving star you set all my dreams ajar with you gotta have something in the bank frank gotta have something in the bank frank you gotta have something to dodge when you get something in the bank frank i'll give you my heart hey there frankie we gotta pay the rent no no frankie we can't live in a tent we need a stove to cook the food and a big refrigerator 
Last night you called me on the phone and told me with a heart of stone we can't live on love alone. You gotta have something in the bank, Frank. Gotta have something in the bank, Frank. You gotta have something to start when you get something in the bank, Frank. I'll give you my heart. Something in the bank, Frank. Something in the Bank, Frank, done by Steve Allen. Steve, I meant to ask you before we played the record, is that a harpsichord or piano in the... Uh... It's one of those old barroom pianos with a kind of a tinkle attachment. What have they got, some uh, chains laying across the uh, wires of the piano? Something like that, or thumbtacks on the felt yeah. or something. Steve, it's a swell record. It's one of the things that's real refreshing to listen to, along with the serious stuff that you do. And thank you very much for making an appearance for Wrigley Spearman Chewing Gum on our show. Well, thank you so much, Howard, for all this time. Good Steve Reno. And we'll be seeing you real soon in New York City. Okay. Right, Steve. That was Steve Allen speaking from his offices in New York City, where we had an opportunity to visit uh, via the magic of CBS Radio. We want to thank our engineers at CBS New York for going up to um, the enemy camp to talk uh, to a swell fellow in show business who, of course, made his start at this jockey level and then moved up into the ladder of success until today he's one of the most brilliant personalities of stage and screen, radio, television, writing books, and music. Thanks again to Steve Allen. Now, this is Howard Miller from Chicago reminding you again the best treat I know is Wrigley Spearmint Chewing Gum. Why don't you get some today? Relieve the tension and have fun when you chew Wrigley Spearmint, the lively, bouncy-flavored chewing gum. Here's Joe Foss. Join Howard Miller tomorrow at the same time on the CBS Radio Network. Tonight at 11 on Channel 2's Late Show, rough, rugged Clark Gable stars in the kind of role that made him the king of Hollywood. Gable portrays a tough, ruthless gambler in A Free Soul, tonight's Late Show feature film. Also appearing with Gable on Channel 2's Late Show will be Norma Shearer, Leslie Howard, and Lionel Barrymore. Be sure to see A Free Soul, tonight at 11 on WBBM-TV's Late Show. WBBM-FM, Chicago. Family Theatre presents Joan Leslie and Grant Williams. From Hollywood, the Mutual Network, in cooperation with Family Theatre, presents Roadshow, starring Grant Williams. And now, here is your hostess... Joan Leslie. 
Thank you, Tony Lafrano. Family theater's only purpose is to bring to everyone's attention a practice that must become an important part of our lives if we are to win peace for ourselves, peace for our families, and peace for the world. Family theater urges you to pray. Pray together as a family. You moved easily from radio oh, to television. the transition. Mm -hmm. Well, I was very lucky. You see, mm -hmm. most of us who had done all that radio in the early days of television, all of the producers and directors and writers of early TV were the uh, radio writers and producers mm -hmm. and directors. So I went right into I Love Lucy. Jess Oppenheimer was the producer. Madeline Martin and Bob Carroll were the mm -hmm. writers. They had written My Favorite Husband, which was a show that Lucy had done. Mm -hmm. The Eve Arden Show, the same guy who was directing that, who was directed an Eve Arden show on, on you know. So all of those things. And so, uh, yes, I made a very fortunate transition. I was one of the busiest guys in the early television days. The man you just heard is Herb Vigrant, being interviewed by Chuck Shaden in 1984. He's about to be featured on Family Theater. Family Theater was created by Patrick Payton of the Holy Cross Fathers. Mutual Broadcasting donated the time under four conditions. The show had to be a drama of top quality, strictly non-sectarian, feature a film star, and Father Payton had to pay the production costs. Payton met Loretta Young, who advised him on how to approach A-listers. She became the first lady of Family Theater. Between 1947 and 56, there were 482 dramas broadcast, and few used religion of any kind in the plot. However, by September of 1957, mutual broadcasting was phasing out radio drama. As Herb Vigran mentioned, Hollywood's character actors were doing as much TV as possible. When Family Theater aired its last episode on Wednesday, September 11th, at 8.35 p.m. Pacific Time over KHJ in Los Angeles, the only other dramatic radio shows on KHJ that night were Gangbusters and Horatio Hornblower. This is from the last episode, fittingly called Roadshow. And now to our transcribed drama, Roadshow, starring Grant Williams as Charlie. Is that you? Yeah. Who's that? I saw the light in your garage. Pete. Hey, how's everything? Oh, good. You just get in? Yeah. Yeah, we stopped off for dinner in Ventura. Been pretty hot here, huh? Oh, yeah. 90, 95 the last few days. Did that Bronson kid keep watering the lawn? Oh, yeah. Every evening. Six o'clock, front and back. Good. Good kid. Hey, where are the girls? In the house. They're dead. We drove almost 400 miles today. Yeah. Hey, can I give you a hand with the bags? No, I, I'm just going to bring in this one with the pajamas and toothpaste. Hey, you know, you sound kind of tired. Yeah, I, I'll get the rest out tomorrow. Yeah, well, how was it? Hmm? The vacation. Did you have a good time? Oh, great. I think that's a fine choice of words, great. Something that's great can be long of duration or intensity. Excellent and delightful, or high and swollen as of a body of water. Hmm. Great word, great. Means absolutely nothing. Long of duration or intensity. 
Well, 1,200 miles, but it only took a week. Incredible. Only a week. A week ago this morning, and we were starting out on the road to Bakersfield. That was going to be the first stop, breakfast in Bakersfield. Is everybody happy? Yes, sir. I'll say. Oh, I tell you the way I've been looking forward to this. Seven days without having to look at a typewriter. Now, don't even talk about it. Now, one word. That's the angle. For the next seven days, no one even mentions the word plot, story, character, or script. Deal? Deal. So, you know, I'm getting hungry. Me too. Where are we stopping for breakfast? Bakersfield. Where they had the earthquake? That was five years ago. Hey, hey, here comes the sign. Everybody read. New Hall. Bakersfield? 32 miles. Is that all? To Gorman. Not Gorman. Turn right three miles. That's to New Hall. I don't want Gorman or New Hall. I want Bakersfield. Oh, I didn't see anything about... I saw the word. B-A something. Well, isn't Gorman about halfway? That's from Los Angeles. Okay, honey, get out the map. Oh, Charlie. If Gorman's halfway, it said 32 miles, and 2 times 32 is 64. And when two lines intersect, the opposite angles are equal. But I'd like to look at the map. You know how I hate those This is the little book from the car club. All you have to do is open the page in front and follow the line up to Bakersfield. (sighs) It's not like the big road map. Go on, it's simple. Open the front page. All right. What's it say? Uh, it says Bakersfield. No, no, I mean the number. There's a little number near it. What's the number? I can count at least seven numbers, and they're all different. Just below the word Bakersfield is a line leading up from Los Angeles. And on the line, there's a number. What's the number? Oh, oh, uh, 22. 22 miles? Well, that's closer than we thought. Not 22 miles. That's the page number. What? Turn to page 22 in the book. That'll have the map of Bakersfield. Charlie, you said it was going to be simple. It is simple. Betsy could do it. The book is written for idiots. Oh, thanks, thanks. Well, I am not an idiot, so it won't help me much. Just turn to page 22, will you? That's all there is to it. Believe me, it gives the mileage and everything. All right, all right. Spend my whole trip with my nose in a map. 22. You got it? 22. You find Bakersfield? Well, wait a minute. Right there. Where? Top of the page. Well, it's almost off the page. You got it now? Yes. All right. Now, there's two sets of numbers. Charlie. Will you wait a minute? Oh, there's more than that. For our purposes, there are only two sets. Now, just everyone calm down. One set of numbers are inside circles, and the others are right next to the circles. You see them? Oh, this is insane. Also, there's a set of numbers inside squares and another outside. Ignore the squares. I'm doing my best. Oh, all the funny women are on the road today. Got a zero outside the circle next to Bakersfield. What's that mean? Simply that Bakersfield is zero miles from Bakersfield. Charlie, did they charge you for this map? That's just the way they indicate the mileage from one place to another. Now, look at the number inside the circle next to the zero. The one next to Bakersfield? That's right. 43. That's the number inside the circle? 43. That's right. There you are. That's the mileage. Bakersfield is 43 miles. Oh. From where? What? From where is Bakersfield 43 miles? From the where on the map there. Oh, fascinating. Now, wait a minute. Without this, we could get lost. From the other zero, that's where. Down at the bottom. 43 miles from the other zero outside the circle. The zero outside the circle is next to Bakersfield. Then the zero inside the circle. If it's not one, it's got to be the other. Common sense will tell you that. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where are we? We're going through a town. Oh, hey, look for signs. Then we can measure. The zero inside the circle is next to Gorman. Never mind the map. Look for signs on the road. Oh, I can't find my glasses. Betsy, here comes one on your side. Yeah, I see it. Can you read the words? Yeah. You are now leaving Bakersfield. Lillian Byeth played Helen Blackwell. (laughs) Does anybody remember a show called... Uh, the Dr. Christian... Oh, yeah. 
That was, uh, it was Jean Herschel, was Dr. Christian, Rosemary DeCamp was his nurse. The director of that show was Neil Reagan, Ronnie's brother. And uh, Neil Reagan had a great sense of humor, sometimes. But um, one of the good things about radio for women was that you could have a family, you could be pregnant, you could, you know, I mean, I worked until five days before my daughter was born. And uh, I remember working that show. It was an audience show. It was an evening audience show where you got dressed up and it was kind of, you know, those few things. And Neil Reagan purposely cast me in a part where one of the lines I would have to say was, I'm to be married next week. I was about eight months pregnant at the time. Well, I was so nervous because I wondered how can I kind of swallow this so it, it just isn't heard too well. And uh, I did pretty good, but I looked in the booth and he wasn't there, he, he'd fallen down. He was just roaring under the table. So then I remember um, Virginia Gregg and I were pregnant at the same time at one time. And we were, do I forgot the name of the show. But of course, we had to have a mic to ourselves. And even then, <laughs> I mean, it was, you know. Did you find out what caused these pregnancies? Yeah, we did. We did. We did. Of course, if you, if you did that show today, Nothing. That's Not right. Nothing. That's exactly right. I'm getting married next week. That's right. But at that time, this was 52, early 52. So we had breakfast in Tulare, except that it was lunch. Actually, about those maps, I know you don't need all that stuff. A big highway like 99 is well marked, but I just like to know where I'm going, that's all. It's half the enjoyment of the trip, I say. I mean, well, there's a lot of lore and legend in this section of the country, and after all, how many chances do you get? Like, take Sacramento, where we stopped off to look at the Capitol building the next morning on our way to Tahoe. Now, to me, stuff like that is something you, you ought to make time for. Although I, well, I guess it was my fault about what happened with the governor. Oh, isn't this a beautiful old building? Yeah. Look up there, inside the dome. Mm. It'd be a long fall. Well, no one's going to fall. There's no one up there. I said it would be. Violence. Maybe it is all this television, and I'm an unwilling cat's poor in a vast Dear, conspiracy. Dear, I don't see anyone like us. What? So, dressed up. Aren't you hot in that suit coat? I'm very comfortable. Will the governor really be there? Of course. Didn't you read the sign? He receives visitors every day at noon. You mean just anybody? Well, I don't think they'll let you in if you're carrying a loaded Dear, rifle. Dear, they are going inside. Okay, okay. Look, they're closing the door. We'll get in. Now, don't panic. Maybe there just isn't any more room. Will you please just leave it to me? Yes? Uh, I'm Mr. Blackwell. I, I hope we aren't too late to see the governor. Uh, Mr. Who? Uh, Blackwell. We were just stopping through on our way from Los Angeles. Why, of course, Mr. Blackwell. The governor will be delighted. Follow me, please. Uh, don't we have to go in there? No, that won't be necessary. This way, please. What is this? You tell me. Maybe it does remember you. When did you arrive from Los Angeles, Mr. Blackwell? Uh, last night. Oh, you must be on a very tight schedule. Well, I wouldn't say exactly tight. Right in here, please. And Mrs. Blackwell? Thank you. Young lady? Mm-hmm. 
Just make yourselves comfortable. The governor won't be long. Well, I'll, uh, I'll be back oh, in a Oh, not at all. No rush. Well, now, isn't he charming? Oh, Good-looking, too. A uh, little oily, if you ask me. You know, I think it's just remarkable that the governor's remembered you from so long. Well, actually, it's been less than two years. Does he know you're a writer? Well, come to think of it, I did mention my line of work. We just chatted for a moment. Well, maybe he's seen your name on television. I don't suppose it's impossible. I don't know how he could have missed it with that one show about the Navy that kept running and running and running. Well, you don't have to watch it, young lady. Oh, I think it's good. In fact, anyone who can sit through Love Me Tender three times where they get off... Somebody's coming. Mr. Blackwell... Well, that didn't I take long. I don't know how to begin apologizing. Oh, nothing it's to apologize no for. It's fault but my own. But how can I say it? I, I mistook you for someone else. For someone else? The governor's been expecting a Mr. George Blackwell from Washington, and he's just arrived. Oh, and well, my, my gosh. Some kind of a civilian defense official. Oh, it's a very natural mix-up. My name is Charles Blackwell. We were just passing through. I, I can't begin to tell you how sorry From Los I Angeles. Am. I'm a writer myself. You may have seen my name on television. Oh, I'm sure I have indeed. Yes, George Blackwell. Uh, Charles. Jo- George is the other oh, one. Oh, yes. <laughs> from Washington. This thing has got me so flustered. I pride myself that this doesn't often Listen, happen. forget it. We understand perfectly. Well, because of my blundering, you missed the public audience with the governor. Oh, that's all right. Daddy's met him before, anyhow. Oh, are you acquainted with the governor? Just once we shook hands. Well, then the least I can do is see that the acquaintance is renewed. No, really. Now, just now, he's in conference with Mr. Blackwell. No, no, no. No, you mustn't bother. Well, Charlie, if we've waited this long... We have to be in Tahoe by four o'clock, so thank you very much, sir, but perhaps the next time we come through... Oh, but gee, the ...is a very busy man, and we're on a tight schedule, so everyone this way. Well, again, I... Sincerely, sir. Not at all. We enjoyed every minute of it. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, young lady. Bye. Goodbye. Gee, I wanted to Just meet... keep walking. Charlie. And lower your voices. What came over you all of a sudden in there? We're well enough out of it. I count myself lucky. What? In any discussion with a governor, the subject of politics is bound to come up, isn't it? Well, what if it does? What if it does? Helen, I just remembered in the last election I voted against him. Oh, my telephone. Well, there was a guy who used to be president of uh, Screen Actors Screen Actors Guild. Guild. And I think he's still president of something or other. I, I don't know what. He shouldn't be. <laughs> Anyhow. <clears throat> yeah, I know you're talking about residuals, right? Anyhow, we were on strike for residuals, period. Ronnie was president of SAG. And while we were on strike... He came in with a package that he said, boy, we better grab this. We'll never get anything better than this. And Ronnie, as you may have noticed, is rather a persuasive speaker. And he's a fairly good-looking man, and he can sway an audience. And he was even better then than he is now. He pushed this thing through and talked everybody into buying this deal. And he had been negotiating with uh, Lou Wasserman, who was his agent, and he was under contract to General Electric as a spokesman and an ambassador at large, a PR guy. And those are the people he was negotiating for us with. Well, it, we didn't do too well. It was a pretty horrible deal. <laughs> Suffice it to say, what we got for residuals was minimal, nominal, plus which at the end of five runs, forget it. So we've got shows running like that Hitchcock. I got I Love Lucy's well, a lot Superman. Of, but a lot of that stuff was done in from 1950 when television, I guess, started to happen, right? 50, Lucy's, 51, 52. The Lucy's were after that residual thing. 
But I ran out of Lucy's a uh, hundred years was ago. Was after the residual or before? Huh? They were before residuals? No, they were after residuals. Oh. When did the good start? The good one? Just uh, last couple of years. Not, not more than uh, four or five years ago. It took all those years, because each three years that they'd negotiate, residuals and labor's increases are all based on what you got. And labor would go in like the auto workers and get a 5% raise, you know, 3% raise. Well, we'd go in and say, you want a 200% raise? The first radio commercials that I ever did, I got $17 for the spot which gave them 13 weeks unlimited use. And they ran it and ran it and ran it for $17. Now, three years later, when they go in to renegotiate it, they ask for $35, which is nothing for the exposure you get. You want a 100% raise? You know, no way. We'll give you a 5% raise. And that, that's only and for it, one time. That's it, only for reporting time. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, no, the $17 was for local. Well, I don't know. If it was national, it would have been something like there was 20, another scale $23, yeah. So, Sacramento. Of course, technically, I don't count that as part of the vacation. We were just sort of on our way, so to speak. It was Lake Tahoe we were waiting for, me especially. I remember when I was a kid, I used to go up to the North Woods in Wisconsin. Tall pine trees spring-fed lakes, boating, swimming, aquaplaning. And it said in the brochure there was aquaplaning at Tahoe. I couldn't wait. At 10 o'clock the next morning, I was down at the pier, rearing a go. Oh, just look how clear that water is. Beautiful. Beautiful. Looks cold. It's bound to be a little cold. See all that snow on the mountaintops? You Mr. Blackwell? Yeah. Yeah, you the boy who's going to handle the boat? Uh-huh. Which kind do you want? Which kind of what? Water skis. You want to go water skiing, don't you? No. No, aquaplaning. You don't want to go water skiing. No, I want to go aquaplaning. Don't you have an aquaplane? Just water skis. There's no place around here we could rent an aquaplane. Just water skis. Oh, go ahead, Dad. I'll bet it's fun. Okay, okay. Where's the skis? Uh, here in the locker. Oh, um, is it all right if we ride along in the boat? Well, I guess so. Sure. Here. Just put your feet in the rubber things. Okay. Then, uh, how do we get started? Um, well, you have to be in the water. Yeah, I figured on that. You get into the shallow water here, and after you got the skis on, you take hold of the rope and I pull you. That's all there is to it? Well, it helps if you keep your knees together and lean forward. Uh-huh. Good enough. Well, when you get in the water, I'll throw you the rope. Okay. Is it all right for us to get in the boat? Sure. Well, here I go. What's the matter, Daddy? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Is it cold, dear? Ooh. I, I, I wonder how the, how the fish can stand it. Here's the rope. Well, wait. Well, wait. Ooh. No. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not ready yet. Just warming up the engine. Boy, 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 boy. This, this is the life, huh, kids? Off, they. Oh, it's such a beautiful day. 
beautiful morning. I'm surprised we're the only ones down here. Well, I, I'm not. Are you ready? Oh, wait. I, I got one ski turned around. Dear, are you sure you want to do this? Listen, listen, listen. My only chance of getting out of the water is to stand up on these. I, I got to take it. Say when. Knees together. Lean forward. Okay. Here we go. Hey, okay. Knees together. Faster! Faster! I'm almost up! Oh! Hey, my feet are spreading apart! Wait! Wait! Help! Let go of the rope! Are you all right, dear? Never better. You were really up there for a moment. Which moment was that? You want to try it again, mister? Certainly. Certainly, I... I think I got the idea now. Charlie, it looks awfully strenuous. Uh, don't be silly. Swing the boat around, son. I, I need a little exercise. <coughs> After all, what's a vacation for? Great place, Tahoe. We plan to go back again next year. Wonderful for kids. Tall pines... Spring-fed lake. Boating, water skiing. That's for kids, too, that water skiing. But I'm glad I tried it. I say if you don't try things, you're not living. Of course, Helen was right. It it was a little strange. After the episode ended, Joan Leslie came back on with the final PSA in family theater history. This is Joan Leslie again. We all admire those who are willing to sacrifice themselves to help others, those who are generous and unselfish. A kind deed is more than the good that is done at the moment, for kindness is something that is passed on from one person to another and can go on circulating through the world. People who are cheerful and self-sacrificing are giving to others an inspiration that is passed from one generation to another, an example that can inspire men and women everywhere. And in a home where parents are thoughtful and unselfish, where children are appreciative and thankful and generous, there's a true happiness, despite the disappointments and the difficulties of daily life. That's the way every home should be, the way our homes will be if we have started the daily practice of family prayer. Because with God's help, with God's blessing... The family that prays together stays together. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Family theater is broadcast throughout the world and originates in Hollywood. This is Mutual, the world's largest network. From the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee, the country music capital of the world, it's your grand old Opry, starring the Texas troubadour, Ernest Tubb. On Saturday, September 14, 1957, the grand old Opry signed on from WSM in the Ryman Auditorium. 
WSM is a 50,000-watt clear channel station located in Nashville, Tennessee. Founded by the National Life and Accident Insurance Company, the station's call sign stands for We Shield Millions. WSM first signed on October 5, 1925. The next month, on November 28th, the WSM barn dance took to the air for the first time. On December 10, 1927, the program's host, Judge George D. Hay, referred to the show for the first time as the Grand Ole Opry. The Opry began running coast to coast on Saturday evenings in 1939. The show moved to the Ryman Auditorium in 1943. As it developed in importance, so did the city of Nashville, which became America's country music capital. By 1954, WSM was considered the outstanding music station in the country. That October 2nd, a teenage Elvis Presley would have his only Opry appearance. I'm so tired of roaming around with a gal like you. I'd settle down and I'd walk a million miles for a great big southern smile. Mississippi gal, I love you. Oh, thank you just a whole lot, neighbors, and a big, hearty welcome to the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, we've got a whole flock of your favorite Grand Ole Opry stars on hand tonight. June Carter. Chet Atkins. The Jardineers. Dale Wood. And the entire Opry gang. Plus, our special guest star, one of Hollywood's biggest country and western stars, Rex Allen. Well, we've got lots of music and fun in store for you tonight, neighbors, so we'll keep rolling right along and say, here come the Jardineers. I used to do a roundup, and we'd call in eight or ten capitals of the world. We were beginning to have a staff in each of the great cities, full-time, not stringers. Now, I got word just before I went on that we would go... Paris first, and then London. So I introduced Paris, and Paris was on. As I was sitting there, and my head was down, musing and listening to what was coming from Paris, while with the other ear I was listening to London, upcoming London, I heard a voice say, look up, Ben. And there was the director of the program in behind the glass booth with a piece of paper written on it, Spain, and signaled me, not London, Spain, Spain. When we finished the show, I suddenly said, oh, who said, look up, Ben? What was all that? He said... With them, 30 seconds to go, London coming. RCA said they now have the Madrid circuit, and I wanted to get it fast before we lose it. I rapped in the glass, and you didn't uh, respond. You couldn't hear me. I thought, maybe you're plugged into London. So I said, hey, Fred Bate, I think Ben is plugged into you. Tell him to look up. So Jack's voice went out to London, 3,000 miles. Bates said, hey, look up, Ben. Came back to me 3,000 miles, and I looked up six feet into the director's eye. Now, Monitor brings you Meet the Press, the prize-winning discussion program produced by Lawrence e. Spivak, ready for the spontaneous unrehearsed conference of four of America's top news reporters. Their questions not necessarily reflect their point of view, but maybe their way of getting a story for you. Now, here's the moderator of Meet the Press, Ned Brooks. And welcome once again to Meet the Press. Meet the Press grew out of a partnership between Martha Roundtree and Lawrence Spivak. Roundtree, a freelance writer, broke into radio in the late 1930s. She created the panel show Leave It to the Girls in 1945, before teaming with American Mercury editor Lawrence Spivak 
to produce a radio show promoting his magazine. Spivak would be the permanent panelist representing the press. They would invite top newsmakers to be put on the spot without preparation or oratory, and thus find out what they really stood for. The show debuted on October 5, 1945 over mutual broadcasting. Meet the Press was soon making its own headlines. The panelists purposely pitted two editors known for their opposition to the guest viewpoint, with one middle-of-the-road type, and Spivak. In 1947, while still airing on Mutual, a TV version began airing on NBC. The radio version aired over Mutual for five years before going off the air and moving to NBC in May of 1952. On September 15, 1957, the guest was Archbishop Makarios of Cyprus. The discussion regarded Cyprus's quest for independence. The population was made up of both Greeks and Turkish Cypriots and had been under British rule since 1878. Greeks wanted British removal with a union with Greece. The Archbishop was one of the loudest voices in this quest. Makarios, who was in favor of bombing attacks that had occurred against government offices in 1955, was exiled in 1956. And by 1957, most leaders in the National Organization of Cypriot Fighters had been killed or captured. They turned to organizing schoolchildren riots and killing the families of police and military personnel. For centuries, this island in the eastern Mediterranean has been a symbol of a struggle against foreign influence. As the modern champion of the right of his people to self-determination, Archbishop Macarius has become one of the world's most controversial figures. He is the recognized leader of the movement for independence from Great Britain and for uniting the island with Greece. He arrived in this country just a few days ago to resume his fight before the United Nations. Last year, after a breakdown in negotiations with Britain, Archbishop Macarios was arrested by the colonial government. He was accused of promoting violence by the National Organization of Cypriot Fighters. He was sent into exile on a remote island of the Indian Ocean. His arrest aroused a storm of protest in Cyprus, in Greece, and in the British Parliament, and violence on the island increased. Thirteen months later, in March of this year, he was released. He now lives in Athens because he is forbidden to return to Cyprus. Again, although we're certain that the Archbishop will have no difficulty with our English, we've asked Mr. Andre Michalopoulos to act as interpreter when and if necessary. And now seated around the press table, ready to interview Archbishop Makarios, are John Oakes of the New York Times, Marquis Childs of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Merrill Muller of NBC News, and Lawrence E. Spivak, our regular member of the Meet the Press panel. Now, Archbishop Macarius, if you're ready, we'll start the questions with Marquis Childs. Uh, your Grace, what is your purpose in coming to the United States at this time? Is it to agitate for the freedom of Cyprus? Well, I came here to bring the voice of my people seeking freedom. I am planning to come in contact with the various delegations to the United Nations to enlighten them about the nature of Cyprus' problem. At the same time, I will come in contact with American, American people and ask them for their moral support so the people of Cyprus obtain their freedom. 
Uh, what, Your Grace, is your opinion of the policy of the government of the United States towards Cyprus? Do you think the government has been firm enough for independence? Well, the United States are always the leader of the, of the free world. And uh, I think that now, when freedom is at stake, the United States cannot remain unconcerned. So I hope that uh, we will have the support uh, of the American government. I don't know what uh, the attitude of the, America, of the American government is now, but I think that uh, uh, they will uh, exercise their influence so that uh, the matter can be settled. Mr. Spivak. <clears throat> Your Grace, are you willing to leave the solution of Cyprus entirely to the United Nations? Well, the United Nations uh, is an international organization, and uh, such problems as uh, the Cyprus plop, uh, problems uh, is within the, the jurisdiction of this organization. And uh, if the United Nations act uh, on the base, uh, on the basis of uh, of the principles of the United Nations Charter, then I am sure that uh, a resolution will be adopted, uh, calling for uh, the settlement of the Cyprus problem. So we trust uh, the United Nations. Uh, <clears throat> Your Grace, suppose the United Nations solution does not meet all of your demands on Cyprus. Will you accept such a resolution, or will you only accept the resolution that meets with your entire approval? I think that the United Nations cannot uh, reject uh, the demand of any people who is seeking to be given the right of self-determination. The rebellion continued throughout 1958, even after Makarios had abandoned his initial demands. They finally ended in February of 1959, when agreement was reached for Cyprus to become an independent republic. The radio version of Meet the Press aired until July 27, 1986. The TV version is still being shown today. It was unlimited because it was theater of the mind. It was, it's, as I, the only thing I wrote in radio that I'm proud of was the opening to CBS Radio Workshop, which says, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. We use that every week. Bill Conrad would come on booming that. But that's really what radio was about. You could say we're in Cairo. You could say we were in New York. You could say we're now, and sound effects did it for you. And actors who were so incredible that they could create any character instantly. 
the cast in those radio shows, probably the, some of the great actors of all times. The man you're listening to is William Frug. He was instrumental in bringing the CBS radio workshop back to the air. CBS was still airing dramatic programming on Sunday afternoons. In 1957, Frug became the VP of programming. He took the position against his will. Did you stay with the show till the end? I stayed with the show until they blackmailed me. Howard called me from New York and said, you got a choice. A guy, Della Chapa, is going to CBS television. It means his job is open as vice president of programs, which I did not want. He said, we have decided no executive can collect the salary as an executive and also pick up a talent fee, which I was doing, $150 a show to produce and direct the Columbia workshop. He said, the management's decided you can't be both an executive and talent. So either you take Della Chapa's job or you'll lose the Columbia workshop. However, if you'll take the vice president job, we'll pay the same money you're making. You won't lose any money. I flew back to New York and said, Howard, I don't want the job. I don't want to wear a suit and tie. I love writing and producing. He said, I know, but we have to have somebody fill this job. I said, we're all slowly vanishing, and you and I know that. I took the job, and I think it was like three or $400 a week. Very grateful for the money, but I had to give up all producing and directing. I did it for one year and begged out. The CBS Radio Workshop, a reimagining of the old Columbia Workshop, had debuted with the critically acclaimed two-part adaptation of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World on January 27, 1956. It was in its second season in 1957, and unfortunately on the chopping block. Frug stayed with the CBS Radio Workshop until 1957. Afterwards, Anthony Ellis took over Hollywood's production. Paul Roberts was the New York counterpart. So that's how it came back. Thereafter, I was in charge of all of them and laid out some of all the programs, I think. Stan Freeberg and I had been doing work together, and I suggested to him we'd do a dissertation on satire, which we did. And then we did a Japanese haiku show, and we did Jimmy Blue Eyes, which was an idea of Sam Pierce's. We could do anything. That was the fun of it. So were you the one then on the CBS Radio Workshop, the one who made the decision of which shows, which scripts would be selected yes. and used? Uh, some of them were done from New York, yeah. like alternate weeks. I was in charge of the ones from Hollywood. Howard Barnes and Paul Roberts were in charge of the ones from New York. Ours were the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> on Sunday, September 22nd, 1957, with no national sponsorship forthcoming, the CBS Radio Workshop went off the air with an adaptation of Sinclair Lewis's Young Man Axelrod. From Hollywood, the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. As freshmen first we came to Yale, all round, 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 round. Examinations made us pale. Ponder on, ponder on, ponder on. Eli, 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 Yale. Ponder on, ponder on, ponder on. Eli, 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 Yale. Ponder on, ponder on, ponder on. On college campuses across the nation, from Bowdoin in Maine to Occidental in California, this Indian summer afternoon. The freshman class is anxiously settling down to the first of its bright college years. 
for them, we have a story. It is a tender legend of the Yale of yesteryear, Young Man Axelrod. Written by Sinclair Lewis, Yale class of 1907, and dramatized for the workshop and directed by William N. Robeson, class of 1928. Narrated by John Hoysrott, class of 1926. And most particularly, dedicated to the Yale class of 1961. Young Man Axelbrod. Here's the good old Yale, drink it down, drink it down. Here's the good old Yale, drink it down, drink it down. Here's the good old Yale, she's so hearty and so hale. Drink it down, drink it down, drink it down, down, down. It was a September afternoon in one of the years between the two world wars. The great elms of the old campus wore the last of summer's greenery. The warm sun caressed the gothic crag of Harkness and spread a golden sheen on the weathered bricks of Connecticut Hall before which Nathan Hale, class of 1773, forever stands in bronze, despairing that he has but one life to give for his country. Into this timeless scene, through the entry between Osborne and Vanderbilt Halls, strode an anachronistic figure, a rugged, white-bearded old man, wearing a neatly pressed black broadcloth suit and celluloid collar, Knut Axelbrod, retired Minnesota farmer, a man with a destination, the office of the dean of Yale College. Come in. Excuse me, uh, you are the dean of the college? Yes. I am uh, Knut uh, Axelbrod. Yes, Mr. Axelbrod. What can I do for you? I am here about uh, entering college. I see. And where is the young man? The young man? Yes. Your son, or perhaps your grandson? Oh, uh, no, sir. It, it's me. Uh, it is I. You? <clears throat> well, uh, I must say this is rather irregular. No, sir. Everything is regular. I pass all the examinations. It wasn't easy, but I pass. Uh, yes. Yes, yes. So I see. Yes, here's your name, Knut Axelbrod. Yeah, that's me. Uh, yes, yes. Everything seems to be in order. But, Mr. Axelbrod, yeah. you please pardon me for saying this, but you are not, well, not exactly the usual age of our beginning students. Oh, yeah, uh, I know, but... Um, what? Well, there's a fella said once, uh, youth is so wonderful, it is a shame it must be wasted on the very young. But... And <clears throat> I feel still young. Oh, yes, yes, I'm sure you do. But I'm still curious. About what, Dean? Why Yale? Why did you want to come to Yale? Well, uh, uh, how could I say that? Uh, yeah. All my life I work hard. I farm my land, I raise my family, I get up with the sun, I go to bed with the sun, and always I say, that is not enough. Always I say, Knut, you are a dummy. I say, what good is a man without education? And then when my last son is grown man, I quit. I give him the farm, and I say, Knut, now you can get education. So I read. All day long I read, sometimes half the night. I, I read almost all the books in the public library back home in Urolaman. Then one day I uh, read the book about Yale, and I say, by golly, I got to go there and, and learn some more. Um, what book did you read? Stover at Yale. Hmm. 
Yes. But, Mr. Axelbrod, you understand that Yale has changed a lot since that book was written. Oh, Yale is Yale. I believe that. Oh, so do I, sir. But Yale is for... Well, what I mean to say is that... Um... What you mean to say is uh, maybe uh, Yale is for the learning of beauty? Eh, yes. Yes, I suppose that is what I meant to say. And so Knut Axelbrod was duly registered as a freshman in Yale College and assigned a room, not in Berkeley Oval where the cream boys of the prep school cliques lolled in comparative luxury, but in a grubby frame building far down High Street where were lodged the unplaced freshmen, the scrub seniors and assorted grinds and self-help students. Here he met his roommate, Ray Gribble. Come in, door's open. Are you Mr. Gribble? Yeah. I am Mr. Axelbrod. And whatever you're selling, I don't want any. Oh, well, I'm not uh, selling anything. I am your new roommate. Y- your what? Your roommate. Who said so? The fellow at the registrar's office. He said to come here, room 18, and he say my roommate will be Mr. Gribble. Well, beggars can't be choosers. Uh, please? Uh, nothing. You can have that bed over in the corner. Got a couple of broken springs, I'm afraid. You know how it is. First come, first serve. Oh, sure, sure. Thank you, Mr. Griffin. Wait, wait, freshmen, wait. Wait while the song smites the sky. Knut Axelbrod set out to savor the college he had learned from a book. He sat on the Yale fence in what he felt was an appropriate pose, not knowing that this was no longer done, not realizing why the undergraduates snickered as they passed. He went out to Yale Field to watch the football tryouts, but when he tried to get acquainted with the beefy candidates, they clearly indicated they thought he was crazy. Everywhere his warm overtures of friendship were met with the cruel, cold disinterest of youth. He was not a campus character. He was the class freak. T'was brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the borogrove. Hey, Axelbrod, pipe down. I got a math assignment to finish. Oh, I'm sorry, Gribble. <laughs> you know, but this, this book, by golly, it is so funny. What book? Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland? Is that your English assignment? Oh, no. Well, then why are you wasting your time on it? Uh, it's funny, by golly. <laughs> well, I don't understand you, Axel Broad. I just don't understand you. Why? I'm a simple fellow. Well, it strikes me a man of your years ought to be thinking about saving his soul instead of reading children's books. Oh, I don't think Alice in Wonderland is very much for children. It says some pretty deep things in a funny way. Rubbish. And my soul's in pretty good hands. I go to chapel every morning. It's compulsory. Axelbrod, what is your purpose in life? What do you hope to get out of Yale? I can't say it very well, but um, there was a fellow once uh, maybe said it better. He said, truth is beauty and beauty truth. That's all you know on earth and all you need to know. You try to buy a meal with truth and try paying the rent with beauty. Uh, The same fellow said, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness. Yes, but remember Longfellow's exhortation. Uh, Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate. 
Still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor. Yeah, but another fellow said, the world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Oh, you are a hopeless romantic, Axel Broad, and I doubt if you will ever amount to a hill of beans. Hi, Gribble. Hi, Atchison. Well, well, how's old man Axel Broad tonight? Good evening, Atchison. I think our bearded wonders in his second childhood. I just caught him reading Alice in Wonderland. You'd do better to work on that English assignment for tomorrow, that merchant of Venice. I can't make head and a tail out of Shakespeare. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth like a gentle rain from heaven. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives. You know it by heart. I learned it a long time ago. Yeah, but do you know what it means? Yeah, I think so. That beats me. Listen. What is that? The Whiffenpoofs over at Maury's. Whiffenpoofs? What is Whiffenpoofs? A whiff-and-poof is an undergraduate with a rich father and a so-called singing voice. He's got nothing to worry about. He can afford to hang around Maury's and drink beer and sing every night. His old man pays the bills. He doesn't have to work for his education the way fellows like Atchison and I do. But if it weren't for us, they'd never get through college. We wait tables for them, we tutor them. I think it's not so bad to enjoy life when you're young. I think radio began its decline at the end of World War II, with the development of television, probably late 40s, early 50s. Almost 1950 exactly when I would date it from. TV was taking over. What happened was just economics, because the management, of, of whom I was a part, just said, your budget is cut, your budget is cut. Amos and Andy were brought back as disc jockeys. It was just economics. And gradually shows were just left out of the schedule. I think the final thing I realized I got an offer to go into television, and I didn't want to go into television, but I knew my job was vanishing. But I really knew it was vanishing. After I left and took a job at Screen Gems as a writer-producer, they never replaced me. I was the last vice president of CBS Radio. (laughs) But life cannot be only good talk before a crackling fire. Dawn comes cold, dawn comes gray, dawn brings reality. As Knut Axelbrod walked across the morning empty campus, he knew what he must do. Age and youth, they just don't mix. This beautiful place belongs to the young men, not to me. And that boy, if I saw him again, it would not be the same. I tell him all I got to say tonight. Next time I wouldn't be young men... Axel Broad, I'd just be an old boar. I live 65 years for tonight. It was worth it. The saddest tale we have to tell afternoon in the day coach of a westbound train, an old man sat smiling, a look of great content in his eyes, and in his hands a small book in French, though the curious fact is that this old man couldn't read one single word of French. 
Listen to the CBS Radio Workshop production of Young Man Axelbrod by Sinclair Lewis, adapted for radio and directed and produced by William N. Robeson. John Hoyt was the narrator. Carl Swenson played Young Man Axelbrod, and others in the cast included John Daner, Dick Crenna, Jackie Kelk, Ben Wright, and Frank McDonald. The chorus was under the direction of Amerigo Marino. With this program, we conclude the current series of workshop productions. We wish to thank the many, many loyal listeners whose constructive and intelligent letters have encouraged, inspired, and directed our efforts in presenting plays in the theater of your mind. We look forward to resuming this rewarding task in the not-too-distant future. Until then, thanks and goodbye. This is the CBS Radio Network. Dan and I were just talking about, on the, a little while ago, about Bill Robeson, who was a rather difficult man. Yes. <laughs> Egocentric to a fault. Always wore capes. Didn't he wear capes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But he could have been the Phantom of the Opera. I yes, think. that kind of thing. <laughs> I think it had red silk lining or something. But, uh, and he wasn't really difficult, but he was, he made himself known. Yes, he was a very commanding presence. Commanding indeed. And he well, he wanted to rewrite every script. I mean, you, you, yes. the, the original script had no resemblance to the final product. Right. right, and he did Calling All Cars. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. One yes. of the yes. first uh -huh. things that mm -hmm. I remember. And a lot of Big Town. Mm -hmm. He did Big Town. Yes, true. And suspense. He did some suspense. After the workshop signed off for the final time, Suspense signed on, directed by William N. Robeson, and guest starring Jackie Kelk and Jeanette Nolan. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Whether you call it by the poetic phrase, the silver cord, or more prosaically, just mother's apron strings, smother love can louse up the life of a growing boy. Complicate it with what child psychologists call sibling rivalry, and the boy may cease growing altogether, at least emotionally. Of such elements is Greek tragedy made, and as it happens, the story you are about to hear. Listen. Listen then as Jackie Kelk stars in Shadow on the Wall, which begins in exactly one minute. Now, how many of you have heard a doctor lecture on the lining of the stomach and what you're doing to it? Suspense well, was a very, very important show. I must say that I was not the director of Suspense in its heyday. Bill Spear was. And Bill Spear did not create Suspense, but made it the great show that it was. I came along at a time when radio was paring down all of 
the adjuncts to great production in terms of money for stars, money for cast, money for orchestra, etc., etc. The coating of his stomach, and the doctor told him that before he could get well, he'd need a new coat for it. Mike thought that over and made up his mind that a buffalo robe with hair on it was just the thing. So he sat down and swallowed one. He could drink any amount of whiskey after that, and that's a fact. <laughs> Folklore belongs to every nation's legendary past, and I guess we Americans have our share of some tall ones. And now... Shadow on the Wall, starring Jackie Kelk. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Soon, very soon now, there'll be a shadow on the wall. Shadows, always shadows. I'll never get away from them. I've been watching them for days now. Or is it weeks? I don't know anymore. But I do know it started the last day of my brother's life. My brother. My dear, dear older brother. A thief. All my life he had stolen from me. Stolen my father's respect and then my mother's love. Now he was determined to steal the last hold I had on life. The house. The house where I was born and grew up out on Long Island. He was building a modern monstrosity on the estate a few hundred yards away. And when it was finished, the house, mother's house, was to be wrecked. It was just too much. Henry, will you stop whining? I have a great deal to do before I leave for the coast. Roger, if I have to get on my knees and beg, I will. But please don't destroy the house. This place is worthless. Victorian houses like this cost too much to maintain. You think of nothing but money. What about my feelings? Your feelings? Yes, and and Mother's, if she was still alive. Oh, Mother would approve, I'm sure of How that. How do you know? This is the house Mother came to as a bride. The house where she bore and raised her two sons. This house was her life. Oh, really, Henry? It's true. How can you stand by and watch the room where she used to kiss us goodnight, broken to bits by wreckers? Sentimental nonsense. And what about all her silver and furniture? Old and beautiful... You can't put things like that in a modern house. We'll pack them carefully and send them to storage. Yes. Yes, you just pack Mother away and forget her. Look, look here. Her favorite candlesticks. Don't wave that around. It's worth a small fortune. And a wealth of love to me. Where will these go in your fancy new house? All right, put them under your pillow then, like your baby teeth. I don't care. No. No, you don't, do you, Roger? You don't care one little bit. What are you talking about? Why should you care? You got it all. You're the executor of the estate. Yes, and you've been the executioner of my self-respect. Nonsense. Now, as I said, I have a great deal to do before I leave tomorrow. I hate you, Roger. I hate you. What? I'd like to see you dead. Henry, stop being childish. I'd tear your heart out if you had any. Henry, put down that candlestick. No, they're mothers. And you want to pack mother away. I order but you, you to... But you won't destroy us. You won't put mother's memory in storage. I'll make sure mother isn't hidden. You give me that. No. No. I hate you. I hate you. I 
stood dazed. Roger lay on the floor, a trickle of blood oozing from his temple. I bent over him. No breath. No pulse. Roger was dead. Suddenly I heard a car coming up the drive. Mrs. Loomis, the housekeeper, was returning from the village. I dragged Roger's body to the closet, pushed him inside and locked the door. Not a moment too soon. Mr. Henry, I stopped by the laundry for Mr. Roger's shirts, but they weren't ready. Oh? He'll be furious, I suppose, seeing he's flying to the coast in the morning. Well, uh, it doesn't matter, Mrs. Loomis. He's already gone. Gone, sir? Yes, he decided to spend the night in New York at the club and go to the airport from there. Well, I never got a chance to say goodbye to him. Perhaps we could go to the airport together. No, and... no, I'll, I'll see him off alone. But I always wish Mr. Roger well before one of his trips. I'll give him your best wishes, Mrs. Lomas. I'd rather you stayed here in the morning. Very well, sir. It'll just be you for dinner, then. Oh, don't bother tonight, Mrs. Lomas. Why don't you take the night off for a change? Go to a movie. Why, I, I might at that, sir, if it's all right. Of course. Thank you, sir. But I do wish I could have seen Mr. Roger off. I waited in the library until I heard Mrs. Loomis go out. I had to get rid of the body now. I am not one who suffers fools gladly nor accepts much brown nosing. I want talent. I want ability. And I will go to lengths to find it, and I will also go lengths to put up with it, as sometimes is necessary. All right, but where's the sponsor who will put... Now, get this. Well, I'm talking about 20-year-old figures. Who will put $5,000 into a superb super production. That's all it would cost in radio. There isn't a sponsor in this country but $5,000 a week. He'll put $250,000 into a film. He won't put $5,000 into a radio show. Let him give me the $5,000 and see what happens. You won't get any audience. But those you get will buy your product by the barrel. They'll be so grateful. At 5.05 p.m., Indictment signed on, starring Nat Poland and Jack Arthur. Indictment debuted on January 29, 1956. It told stories from the files of former ADA Eliezer Lipsky. Episodes presented the step-by-step -step details that went into gathering evidence which led to an indictment. Indictment, a formal written charge of crime as the basis for trial of the accused. Indictment. The drama you are about to hear is from New York City and is based on stories of the criminal law with authentic procedures as detailed by Eliezer Lipsky, former assistant district attorney of New York. It is the assistant district attorney who directs criminal investigations, assembles facts and witnesses, builds the case to a just indictment. This way, Fatso, through the door. 
Okay, hold it up. Turn out your pockets. Belt comes off, shoelaces. Put your wallet in the envelope and seal it. <clears throat> How long do I stay here? Till the day you're sentenced. You pick up your stuff when you go up the river. All right, go ahead. Lick the envelope. Yeah. I could use a drink. There's water in your cell. All right, this way. Okay, watch the door. In you go. Okay, fatso. You can draw against the money in the envelope once a day for cigarettes, candy bars, and postage stamps. Have fun. Legal aid. I could have done better if I tried my own case. What was your rap? Huh? I swear I didn't see you up there. I always liked uppers. What was your rap? What was yours? <laughs> Same as usual, make them book. Yeah. Attempted extortion. I had a good thing going on a trash handling racket. Move in on new stores around the housing projects. But I had to go and pick on an ex-Marine. So I'll get a year. Won't kill me. Oh, no. What's with the oh, no? They got a new gimmick now. Indeterminate sentencing. Indeterminate? What's that? Indeterminate. That's up to three. They can keep me up there for three years for a lousy attempted extortion? Three solid, but uh, with good time, maybe. Oh, no. They don't give me no lousy three years. Uh, who was the uh, DA with your case? I don't know. McCormick, something like that. Yeah, yeah, McCormick. Why? If I was you, I'd holler for him. Why? I hear he's pretty square. Yeah, like a neg. The day I see a square assistant DA. Now, this one I hear is very square. If you was to holler for him and say you want to help yourself, he'll listen. Rat? Rat for the DA? Come on. What you do is up to you. I'm only saying, if you want to help yourself and try and buy a lower sentence, McCormick will listen. The point is, you gotta come through. You gotta give him something. Are you stolen for him? Would I be here waiting for a ride upstate if I was a pigeon? You can help yourself with McCormick. Think. Think of a job you can give him where there was only you and one other guy. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Give him everything, everything. A whole confession. And he sends me up on that, sure. Nah, the beauty part of it is he can't touch you on your testimony. Also, he can't touch you on the other guys. He can't touch him because he can't convict on the testimony of co-conspirators. So that way... All right, all right, just one thing. Yeah? If you're such a good jailhouse lawyer, how come you're going up the river for a lousy bookmaking pinch? Oh, that. Yeah, that. Well, uh, the thing is, making book was the pinch. What the wanted was for murder, too. So uh, when you talk to McCormick, don't mention my name. Get the picture. And we do mean motion picture. This is your chance to attend school within your assigned area. How? By enrolling in a USAFI telecourse. If you are taking a USAFI correspondence course, you may also be able to attend a classroom on film, which will give you additional instruction on the same subject. Although primarily prepared for showing in areas which are serviced by Armed Forces Television, these telecourses can also be shown in any other area which has a standard 16-millimeter projector. The filmed courses each come in a series of from 12 to 20 half-hour films, 
and are conducted by well-qualified high school and college teachers. At the present time, the number of courses is limited. So if you are interested in studying by this method, see your education officer for information and details. Then enroll with USAFI and let a telecourse be your guide. Smith, what's your problem? Mr. McCormick, I want to help myself. What do you mean by that? Well, I want to try and buy a lower sentence. <laughs> Who's been talking to you in there? They put him in the same cell with Billy the Bull, Mr. McCormick. Oh, well, great advice you must have got from a punk who's going to end up in the chair one of these fine days. What do you mean, a lower sentence? How do you know what sentence you're going to draw? I hear about this indeterminate sentence thing you got going now. It means three years, right? It means up to three years. Am I up for that deal? It's up to the court. Look, figure it out. Your yellow sheet shows two dozen arrests in the past 15 years and only two convictions. You're long overdue for a stretch. Mr. McCormick, I heard you was fair and square. I heard you'd listen to a man. Well, I'm listening, I'm listening. You say you want to help yourself. Go ahead. Mr. McCormick, I want to help you. I want to give you a good case. Oh, I don't know. Putting you away has improved my morale considerably. Huh? Never mind, never mind. Okay, you asked me to listen, I'm listening. You got to promise me something first. Mr. McCormick can't make any deals, Smith. I'm trying to say I want to make a confession, but all I ask is you don't use it against me. Are you going to give me somebody else? Is that it? Mr. McCormick, you can send me up a tree, and what do you got? A lousy little attempt at extortion. Dirtiest shakedown racket in years is what it is. That Marine should have beat you to a pulp. Mr. McCormick, do I have to take this from that detective? I give you something, otherwise you got no lead on it at all. <laughs> Come to the point. What I'm trying to say is, I can hand you a good robbery case. Grand larceny, the whole story, names, places. You can close the book on it. If you let me tell you... Let me tell you something, Smith. I have you where I want you. On your way to three well-deserved years in the can, I don't have to make any deals with you. And don't worry, I'll listen to your story. I won't use it against you, but I'm warning you in advance. A, it has to be good info. B, it has to lead to an indictment and conviction. And C, get this through your bullet head, even then, the best I can do for you is inform the court that you've been cooperative with this office. And that is as far as I can or will go to help you. Have you got that? Mr. McCormick, that's all I ask. A word to the judges and they'll know what to do. That's all I ask. They told me you were fair and square and I trust you. All right, you. all right. What robbery? Where? When? Uh, 1953. Easter Sunday. Consolidated furs. The warehouse over where they built the new terminal, right? Detective Russo? He's right, Mr. McCormick. I was on safe and lofts then. We never broke it. Let me ask you this, big man. What was the haul? That curly black fur, those little like goats, curly, uh, caracule, caracule, yeah. And a whole mess of them stripy little things like chipmunks, barra, barra... Baron Ducci? Baron Ducci, right. Six mutation mink, which, by the way, we couldn't unload. They was kind of rare in those days. How much did it come to? What it come to on our end, 5,000 apiece. But for sure, the whole lot was 100 grand in goods. He's on the beam, Mr. McCormick. Records will bear him out. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, there was a whole series of holiday jobs back then. Uh, I'm giving you just this one. Who was in on it? One, there was Eddie Cannon from Chicago. He cased it, worked out the plan, furnished the truck and the guns. And Danny Doby, he drove. Detective Russo, check out those names. Yes. Huh? Uh, wait a minute. I ain't finished yet. There was an eyewitness. 
He wouldn't give you nothing, but I'm telling you, he caught a glimpse. The parking attendant, where Cannon sold the truck. No, no, you don't catch me. I'm giving you the straight story. It was the watchman, and you know it was the watchman. Checks, Mr. McCormick. I must have thrown the fear of death into the old man. He developed the worst case of sudden amnesia we ever ran into. Yeah. Anything else? That's the story. You can check it, and it's all there. I honestly want to help myself, Mr. McCormick. One year, all right, with time off, I'm in good shape. But after all, I'm an old man, Mr. McCormick. I'm in trouble if I got to go up for three years. And I swear, Mr. McCormick, if I get this break, I'm keeping my nose clean. Uh, wait a minute, Detective Russo. I can save you some work. I can tell you where to find Dobie right now. That'll be a help. He's still driving. That was the whole point. He was a legitimate driver. He could handle anything. Pickup trucks, tractor and trailer, anything. Uh, where would I find him? The union. The union would know. Bring him in, Detective Russo. Yes, sir. All right, Smith. The whole thing all over again from the top. Everything you can remember. Am I doing all right, Mr. McCormick? Am I doing the right thing? Am I helping myself? You heard me. Take it from the top. The rest is up to the court. But you're not going to use it against me. That's the understanding. Smith, I'm bound by law not to use this statement against you. Any prosecutor who gets a confession by making a promise not to use it is bound by law. I wouldn't use it even if there weren't a law that said I couldn't. Mr. McCormick, they were right. I guess I did the right thing. Special Bureau, Russo. This is Chicago ID. On that request this morning, Eddie Cannon, you asked for that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, where is he? Well, his body's buried out back at Joliet. He was killed in a prison riot last year. Anything else you want to know? No, that's all. Thanks. Betcha. Mr. Kernikin, uh, try and remember. The warehouse. It was robbed, don't you remember? That you, Frankie? Why don't you ever come to see me, Frankie? Mr. Kernigan, I'm not Frankie. I'm a detective. The fur robbery. Mr. Kernigan, think. It was only five years ago, Easter Sunday, two men robbed the warehouse. Yeah, but radio is such a clean business compared to the rest of show business. There were talented people in radio who got along on their talent, not because they were related to somebody, not because they had something on somebody, not because they could knife somebody in the back. It was the clean end of show business. Elia Kazan, I used to have him on Crime Doctor, I guess it was, quite frequently, and we'd walk from CBS to uh, Grand Central Station after the show, after the broadcast, and Gadget said more than once that to him, good radio, was far more difficult than any of the other media. Now, he'd been born and brought up behind the scenes in the theater, was not only an accomplished actor, but a good director, too. But he felt that, partly because of the limitations of rehearsal, it took more talent to do radio well than any of the other media. That was the voice of director and writer Jack Johnstone. In September of 1957, he was in his third year directing Bob Bailey and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Bob Bailey's daughter, Roberta Bailey Goodwin. Yeah, it is painful. It, those were very good times. And like I say, afterwards, when radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York, and when they tried to convert to TV, so many of the radio personalities couldn't make the conversion. 
And until other jobs opened up, like the sponsor jobs, there were a lot of radio stars that just went completely downhill. Especially, like my father, had nothing to fall back on. He'd been an actor all his life. And by the time his radio show was over, he was almost 50. He weighed about 150 pounds, stood about five foot nine and a half, and they looked at him on television and said, you're not Johnny Dollar. And he said, but I am. I've been. And they said, no, no, we have to get a six-foot-tall guy that weighs about 200 pounds to play the part. It was sad. It was a very sad time when TV just wiped it out. There was a prejudice against uh, radio actors on the part of television producers. When they came in, what I've read, at least, is that a lot of them were young whiz kids who came along and had a new toy, and they said... No, 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 if you worked in radio now, you've got your own way of doing things, and this is TV. And actually, when you think that working in radio would give you a credential, back in the early 50s, it actually worked against you. It did, because if you think of it, radio is an entirely different form of acting. You relied completely on the sound man, the sound mixer, for any sound effects that needed to be put in. Although you stood in front of the microphone, you would move your arms occasionally and act a little. All the acting was in the voice, in what came out from inside of you. You could wheel someone up there in a wheelchair, and he would project over the radio his voice, his emotion. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. This is Peter Hardy at Tri-Western Property and Casualty Insurance. Hi, how are things in the Golden West? You still in Reno? Sure am. Good boy. What goes, Pete? A little trouble with a big dairy farm out here, Johnny. Armenian dairy. Okay, Pete, tell me all. A year and a half ago in a fire, Armenian lost one of his silos. You know, one of those big towers where they store and cure a lot of chopped up corn and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know. Cost us $21,000. 21000 for a silo? This time it's a compound silo and the claim is for 56000 Oh. But I don't want to pay it. I don't blame you. Sure, because Johnny, I think it was arson. <laughs> Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, act one of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Tri-Western Property and Casualty Insurance Company, Reno, Nevada, office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the doubtful dairy matter. Expense account item one, 141.20. Transportation and incidentals, Hartford to Reno, Nevada. It was about 9 a.m. when I arrived, so I checked into the Mapes Hotel, then walked over to Pete Hardy's office. Armenian Dairies is just north of here, Johnny, in Warm Springs Valley off Route 33. Well, then I'd better rent me a car. Or you can use mine. Now, now, Pete, how can I run up my expense account unless I have something to run it up with? Johnny, for one... T- uh-uh. Anyhow, the reason why these silos Armenian has are so expensive... Is that the owner's name, by the way? Yes, Aram Armenian. And I take it he's Armenian? Strangely enough, no. Now, he's had all his silos very specially built. Oh, how specially can you build a silo? Just a concrete base, a lot of long wooden staves to get the circular shape, and a good roof on top. Well, he has some trick with them inside. Like what? That's his deep, dark secret. 
But he claims it makes better silage for his cattle than is possible anywhere else in the world. And one of these things burned up a year and a half ago. The word exploded best describes it. Yeah. And as I said, cost us 21000 And now the replacement has gone up in flames. Yes, day before yesterday. He filed the claim the same day. Well, why do you suspect arson? Did the local authorities find anything suspicious? No, but you go out and talk with Amenian, Johnny. And if you don't end up with the same kind of feeling I have, well, I'll leave my shirt. Expense account item two, $50. Deposit on a drive-your-own car. Finding the Amenian dairy and ranch some 20 miles north of the city was easy. It was spread out all over the countryside. Hundreds of acres of well-irrigated, lush green pastures. Square in the middle of the ranch sat one of the cleanest, most modern dairies I ever saw. Aram Amenian gave me the grand tour, and I must say I was impressed. There was close to 200 well-kept Guernseys in the main barn, which was clean as a whistle. The milking machines, coolers, separators, clarifiers, and so on were the same. Yep, a prosperous-looking setup. Finally, Mr. Amenian took me out to where a small group of workmen were cleaning up what was left of his compound silo. As you can see, Mr. Dollar, only the concrete base is left. That must have been a pretty big silo, Mr. Amenian. That's the largest and most efficient in the entire West. Still, $56,000. Oh, the size had nothing to do with that. It was the inner construction, known only to Barnwell, the man who built it for me, and to myself, of course. Well, what was so special about it? Principally a method of venting. Venting? Yes, it increases the phosphorus and lactic acid content. Well, I thought the point in the silo was to keep it pretty well sealed up. Venting within, Mr. Dollar. But that's all I'll tell you about it. It cost me 56000 to have Barnwell build it. And I wish the company to pay my claim as quickly as possible, because I'm starting construction on new and immediately. Of the same type? Oh, the vastly improved type. Oh, then it was to your advantage to lose the old one. Just what do you mean by that? Your loss came at just the right time, didn't it? Well, just a minute, Dollar. With the insurance money, you can build a new and better one. And when it gets out of date, I suppose you'll have another fire. Oh, I see. You, uh, you think perhaps these last two were deliberately set? Were they? Ridiculous. Is it? But if they were... Yeah? If they were, I, I certainly wouldn't know it. Oh, come on now. After what you've just said... And what's more, Mr. Dollar, I'm sure you'll never be able to prove it. of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in a moment. We sometimes wonder, what is the life of a human being really worth? Not too much? Or maybe a great deal? Does it depend on whose life it is? Whatever the answer, one thing is certain. Fred Hargesheimer, since World War II, has felt that his life is worth quite a lot. Quite a lot of gratitude. During the war in the Pacific, about June of 1943... Lieutenant Hargesheimer had his P-38 fighter plane shot out of the sky. Badly wounded, he bailed out over a tiny island, New Britain. It looked pretty small from where he hit the silk, but he found it much bigger when he hit the ground. It was bigger, and in complete control of the enemy. But Hargesheimer was lucky. After a month of lonely hiding, he was found by a group of friendly natives from the village of Nantambu. They cared for him and successfully hid him from enemy patrols for the next four months at the risk of their own lives. Then Hargesheimer was able to make it back to civilization. 
For the next 17 years, Fred Hargesheimer thought about those wonderful people of Nantambu. 12,000 miles away in the United States of America, Hargesheimer put a great plan into effect. He made speeches, took up collections, sold jewelry belonging to his family, and worked out a way to bring a bit of civilization and happiness to the little village of Nantambu. Needless to say, the villagers gave him a spectacular welcome upon his return. Fred Hargesheimer showed his gratitude to the people who had saved his life. But life is worth little without freedom. The right of all men. Everywhere. And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Doubtful Dairy Matter. By what he said and the way he said it, Aram Armenian was practically challenging me to find out how arson was involved in the destruction of his $56,000 secretly constructed compound silo. Expense account item three phone call from a gas station on Highway 33 to Reno Police Headquarters. But Lieutenant Brady of the arson squad assured me he'd failed to find anything indicating the fire was set. So dead end. Until I remembered a little trick that had worked for me before and might work again. Item four, 27 cents for a loaf of white bread at a grocery store along the highway. Then I drove back to the Amenian Ranch. If I'd known you were hungry, Mr. Dollar, I should have had something provided for you at the ranch house. In spite of your rather nasty attitude about this loss of mine. Food is the last thing I'm thinking of, Mr. Amenian. Well, then why this loaf of bread? If you're not... Whoop. Now, let's see. Oh, now, surely you're not going to eat the piece that dropped in the ashes. No. Nope. No. Well, then get it out of your mouth, man. Well, mm-hmm. Whatever in the world are you doing, Mr. Dollar? Yeah. Yeah, I knew it. You knew what? A sure, a sure test for kerosene, Mr. Armenian. What? Yeah, fresh bread dropped in the ashes of a fire even days after the fire is out. I don't understand. I can still taste the kerosene. And, mister, it makes things look pretty bad for you. Me? Oh, good heavens, man, you can't... Dollar, I resent this this completely unfounded accusation. Go right ahead and resent. Or better still, let me get hold of a stenographer and you can dictate a confession. Get out of here. Want to do it the hard way, huh? Get off this ranch, Dollar. Now leave. Immediately. Sure. I warn you, don't come back. Because if you do... Better be careful, Mr. Armenian. The kind of a threat you're about to make wouldn't sound very good in court. Get out. Get out! Out on the highway, I stopped at the mobile gas station again and made another phone call. Item five, another 20 cents. It was to my old friend, Herb Carlberg, cashier of Reno's Farm Trade National Bank. It was past closing time, but he promised to leave a door open for me. So I grabbed a sandwich and a Coke along the way. That's item six, 80 cents, including tip. Then at the bank, Herb led me back to his private office. Well, sit down, Johnny. Tell me all about yourself. Yeah, later, Herb. We'll go out on the town and talk our heads off. Right now, I need some information. I hope you can tell me where to get it. Oh? Information about what? The Armenian Dairy. Or better still, Armenian himself. You know him? Oh, I certainly do. We're his bank. His happens to be one of the best accounts we have, especially in our investment department. You mean it's big? <laughs> Funny big. Like how much? Well, now, Johnny. I'll tell you this. If I had a quarter of his net worth... I'd have retired long ago. No big outstanding debts on his place? Anything like that? Not a penny. Aram's financial condition is his... Now, wait a minute. Yeah? That fire and explosion of his compound silo? Yeah, that's right. Herb, I've found evidence indicating arson. Well, certainly aren't accusing him. Who else? Oh, no, 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 you're wrong. 
Oh, now look, Herb. He filed that claim so fast. It's the most natural thing in the world for him. It's the way he does everything. Like paying his bills immediately on receipt. He works that way. You expect everybody else to. Well, he gave me the impression he wanted to collect quickly in order to have money for rebuilding. Of course. Rather than cash in some of his blue chip investments. Herb, somebody fired that silo. Well, it certainly wouldn't be Aaron. Ah, you sound like you're in cahoots with him. <laughs> what about his employees? From my impression of the man... They seems... love him like a father. Every one of them. And if every employer was as generous as he is, there wouldn't be any labor troubles in this country. Well, the fact remains that somebody somehow stood to profit by destroying that silo. And the one before it. Well, I can't imagine who. Even his competitors like and respect the man. Oh, so they say. No, 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 they do. He's helped them stay on their feet during hard times, develop new ideas and methods, then pass them on to them. Oh, the fact remains... But Johnny... Johnny, I've had a rough day. How about a nice, cool, casual drink? Then we'll have dinner and take in the town. Item 7, 2130, for drinks and a good dinner back at the Mapes. But I didn't enjoy either. Because Herb and his defense of a median was no help at all. Except perhaps for giving me a list of all the people he could think of who did business with him. I decided to check them all first thing in the morning. Finally, about midnight, having lost our share at a couple of nearby gambling clubs, we parted. Herb drove away to his home on the outskirts of town. I went back to the mix. Uh, take Mr. and Mrs. Kenworthy to room 314, boy. Yes, sir. What can... Oh, Mr. Dolly. Her... Oh, just my key, please. Certainly. Here you are, sir. And I hope you enjoy a pleasant night's rest. Thanks. Oh, by the way, there was a gentleman here looking for you early this evening. Uh, hung around quite a while. Said he'd be back. Well, who was he? He didn't give his name, sir, nor did he wish to leave a message. Mr. Amenian? Mr. Amenian the dairyman? Oh, no, sir. I'm quite sure. Okay, thanks. Yes, sir. Good night. Good night, sir. Oh, Mr. Dollar. Yeah. There he is. There. Huh? Going out the door, the dark brown coat. You're sure? Yes, sir. The same man. I wonder. Yeah, so do I. But, but if he knows you, sir, and saw you... By the time I got out the front door, the man in the brown coat was halfway down the block and walking fast. Faster and faster, as a matter of fact, as I gained on him. He turned the corner, and by this time, both of us were running. Hey! Hey! Were you looking for me? By the end of three or four blocks, it was a real foot race. Then suddenly he turned into an alley, and like a darn fool, I plunged into the darkness of it after him. Hey! Hey! Right here! Oh, no, you... Bob was a fine, fine fellow. No question about it. Uh, incidentally, he wrote one script. He got an idea for, as I recall, a Christmas story one time and asked if he might write a script. Well, that was fine by me. <laughs> so uh, during the Johnny Dollar days, which we recorded out here in Hollywood, Bob McKenney for a long time was my engineer. Excellent engineer. Do you know Bob? Mm. We did not edit those tapes. We recorded the show just as though they were live. A few actors resented this in the very beginning, but most of them got to like it because it got much, much better performances. If we got a third of the way through a program and somebody fluffed, we went back to the beginning, started all over again. But as I say, it got good performances because everybody was on his toes. As a result, we had no editing problems on the Johnny Dollar show.
Parley Bayer was featured in this cast. I know Jack Johnstone. He never went in the booth. He directed as they did 400 years ago. He'd put <laughs> earphones on at his own booth and stood right in the studio with you, which most of us found <laughs> extremely annoying. He was a very affable man, but I said, gosh, hey, your credit should read directed and conducted by, because he, <laughs> he'd wave and point and whatnot, and he insisted on certain weird techniques that after a while you rebelled at, but if you wanted to work, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> after the FBI and peace and war went on at 6.05, Gunsmoke signed on. Bayer had been part of the cast since its first broadcast in 1952. By that time, we were recorded ahead, and we were all very grateful that we had enough shows recorded in the can, so to speak, that we did not know when we were doing our last one. I don't think it would have been a very enjoyable day for us to go in there knowing that this was it. It was kind of I missed five out of about 530 as a lot of shows have done now. I think we entered areas that Westerns, indeed that radio shows had not entered before. There was a little of the psychological involved and there were instances where sometimes right did not triumph mm -hmm. as in the real world. And the thing about Gunsmoke, it became a labor of love for all of us. I know I still have a big library of Western fact and fiction mm -hmm. of that era. We were a pretty intact group there. We had the same director, the same assistant director, same script girl, the same engineer, the same sound crew. The music was the same, and uh, in addition to the four regulars, there probably were not more than 20 or 25 people who were used. It formed a pretty tight nucleus, a stock company, as it were, for that and the show. If we had been given just an outline, I think that Bill and Howard and Georgia and I and some of the regulars, I think we'd get a bad lib to show if... if it was that tight and that close? Yeah. Were so we got close to know to each it. other's uh -huh. timing so well mm -hmm. and anticipate each other's thoughts. And I remember little things like, well, Dylan had told Chester to put some wood on the fire and the sound of the logs going on there. And I went, <coughs> he said, well, get out of the smoke. <laughs> Just as an ad lib, huh? Green, uh -huh. right. you should have got dry, and then we went on with whatever <laughs> we were doing, and things like that. By 1957, Gunsmoke was, quite simply, one of the most influential westerns in history. Norman MacDonald was its director. When Gunsmoke went on the air in uh, April of 52, it was really the only one of its kind. In the years that followed, I think there were a good many imitators, uh, some very successful and some just poor imitations. It had always been a rule of thumb in radio that there should not be any dead air, that people must keep talking. Well, we changed that, not because we deliberately set out to change it, but just because the people we were working with didn't talk all the time. So we had to fill it with sound patterns. We had three sound men for the most part, Bill James, Tom Hanley, Ray Kemper, who contributed more to the show than anybody could ever imagine. For example, the boys on their own time 
realized that we were having trouble with live gunshots. They, on a Saturday, went out with some equipment of their own and recorded shots on tape with a 45 and with a 38 and with a 32, and I think with a 22. These effects then could be played directly through the line so that it didn't flatten out and become just a, a dull pop. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, the United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. saddle, Mr. Dillon. I swear I'm so hungry I could eat a whole hog. Yeah? Well, all the hog you got this morning's cooking on that stick right there, Chester. Is it done? Well, that depends on how hungry you are. It's done. <laughs> Thank you. That's hot, ain't it? It sure will be good to get back to Dodge tonight and sleep in the bed again, won't it? You know something, Chester? Civilization's made you soft. Well, maybe so. But I get mighty tired of using my back for a mattress and my belly for a covering. <laughs> Obviously, you were born for greater things than rooting around on the prairie and living in the rain. It ain't been raining, Mr. Jones. Uh, no, no, it hasn't, Chester. But it will. Sooner or later, it's bound to rain. Yes, sir. Wish we'd brought some more bacon. Say, Mr. Dillon, don't old man Granby live around here somewhere? Uh-huh. Well, maybe we could buy a little from him. According to what I've always heard, old Granby wouldn't lend anybody anything. Yeah. You really think he is a rich miser, like they say? Oh, I don't know, Chester. You know, sometimes a man's entirely different from his reputation. I only met Granby once or twice. He seemed like a nice enough old fellow. Mm. It's the same. I wouldn't want to live out here all alone with nothing but a few horses for company. Yeah, well, he's used to it. Yeah, but even if he does have a lot of money hid away somewhere, there's no place to spend it out here. Granby's pretty old for the pleasures Dodge has to offer, Chester. Oh, my gee, I hope I ain't never that old. <laughs> you know, at the rate you're burning yourself out, you never will be, so don't worry about it. Uh, Mr. Dillon, I live mighty quiet for a young fella who's... Free and still full of blood and stuff? Sure. Or do. Look over yonder. Huh? Over there, that string of dust laying right on the ground there. Ain't that funny? Yeah, I've been watching that. 
Not on the ground, though. There's a dry wash that runs along there. I think somebody's driving the stock down it. Mm. Maybe it's old man Granby. Yeah, maybe. Why don't we go over and say hello, huh? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Mr. Dillon? Yeah. If it is old man Granby, maybe we might could just ask him by a little dab of bacon, reckon? Well, there's no harm in that. Oh, Looks like horses down there. Yes, sir. I can see their heads now. But I don't see nobody driving them. They'll be along in a minute. Well, let's wait here. Yonder he comes. Now, that's not old Granby. Well, let's ride down and say hello anyway. Granby's brand on those horses. You must have hired him a hand. Yeah, maybe. Hello. Hello. You working for Granby? I ain't working for nobody, mister. Oh? And where is he? Where is who? Granby. I don't know no Granby. Those are his horses you're driving. They are? Yeah. I ain't driving them. What do you mean? They got ahead of me in the wash there, that's all. Oh, I see. You a cowboy? Yeah, sure. I'm a cowboy. Somehow you don't look like one. You don't ride like one, either. You're asking the questions, mister. And no decent cowboy would run another man's horses down a dry wash just because he didn't want to get up on the bank and ride around them. I told you, they got in front of me, is all. How come you're not carrying a gun? Does a man have to carry a gun? No. But I'll bet you're the only man within a thousand miles of here who isn't carrying one. Well, maybe I got a better conscience than the rest of you. Maybe. But look, mister, you've run those horses about five miles off of old Granby's place. You want to give us a hand, we'll run them back. I'm in a hurry. It won't take long. The old man might be a couple of days fighting them if we don't. You worry about him. I got to get into Dodge. We'll ride in with you afterwards. I ain't going to do it. It'd look a lot better if you did. I, um... I'd like to, mister, but I can't. I'm leaving now. So long. Well, forevermore, Mr. Dillon, you just going to let him go? Wait a minute, Chester. I'm going to let him hear what lead sounds like. Don't shoot! Don't shoot me! All right, then ride back here. Kill me, mister. I'm not going to kill you unless you try to run away. Why would I try to run away? You just did, Chester. Yes, sir. Ride down the bank and head those horses off. Start them back up the wash. We'll be out of here by the time they're back. All right, sir, Mr. Dillon. You stay right close to me, fellow. Don't you try anything smart. When we get to Granby's, if he says it's okay, then you can go wherever you like. I don't know Granby. I've never been there. And we'll show you the way. Come on, let's go.
Another visit with Joe and Daphne Forsythe. Joe? Joe? Joe, stop reading that paper and talk to me. I'm listening. Go ahead. Well, I was talking to Mrs. Snyder today. You know, she's the one whose boy had 31% less cavities. Uh-huh. Well, she thinks that we should buy bigger savings bonds. Uh-huh. She says that when people can afford it, it makes more sense. Oh, she says there are a lot of different denominations. They start at $25, but then there are a 50, 100, 200, and even $500 bonds. Is that so? And then with the ones we've already bought through the payroll savings plan, we'd have quite a nest egg. Uh-huh. Are you listening to me? Uh-huh. Did you know that the total accumulated compounded semi-annual interest of the Series E savings bond will amount to 93 and a third percent of the original purchasing price? Uh-huh. I thought so. Joe, what did I say? Uh... You said that United States savings bonds are a safe, easy way of investing. I did. That they help guard our country's freedom. And? They're the best investment in America's future. I said something else, too. Oh, yeah. You said that the total accumulated compounded semi-annual interest of the Series E savings bond will amount to 93 and one-third percent of the original purchase price. Well, now, how did you do that? Husband's trade secret. Old man Granby sure can find his horses all right now, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, but I want this cowboy here to meet him. Now we'll see if he's in the house. Wait for you. Get off a horse, fellow. Go on. That's better. All right, come on. We'll take a look. Well, what are you waiting for? Nothing. You go ahead, Chess. It looks like I'm going to have to herd this man in. Yes, sir. You've been kind of balky ever since we ran into you, haven't you? I just don't like being dragged around. I never did. Well, I just want you to meet old Granby. He'll be grateful for your help and run his horses back here. I know what you think, mister. You think I was stealing them horses. Well, I never heard of the old man. I was never near this place. So you told me, but you're here now. I ain't afraid of you or nobody. Now let's go into the house. Come on. Yeah, what is it, Chester? Oh, oh, Granby, he, he's in there. Oh, what's wrong? Right in the room there, Mr. Jones. He, he's just hanging there. What? Somebody's went and hung him right in his own house. I don't want to see him no more. You you go take a look at him. Pull your gun and hold it on this man, Chester. If he makes some moves, shoot him. Yes, sir. Now, you just stand right there real quiet like. I ain't going to do nothing. You sure ain't. Just because I happen to be in the country don't mean I killed nobody. Yeah. Mr. Dillon will decide about that. Who is this Mr. Dillon, anyway? He's a United States Marshal. That's who he is. Uh, a Marshal? A Marshal. Looks like you run into the wrong people, fella. 
Here, I'll hold your gun, Chester, and you'll search him. All right, sir. Here. Turn around. All right, take it easy. Now, the house is all torn up. He must have been looking for old Granby's money. I was never in that house. Ain't nothing on him. Not a thing. All right, Chester. Here's your gun. There, catch it. Thank you. What's your name, fellow? Trimble. Joe Trimble. Where are you from? Up north. Up north where? All over. What are you doing down here? Making a change. Sure. And some cowboy you ran into told you about Granby being rich. So you came here and you kicked the old man around and then you hung him and then you tried to find the money. That's a lie. This is the first time I was ever near the place. I'm sure you did it, Trimble, but I wish I had more evidence. The court of law just might not convict you the way things stand. You're going to let me go? No, I'm not going to let you go. I'm arresting you and you're going to stand trial and I'm going to do my best to see you hung. I didn't do it, I tell you. I'll go free, too. You'll see. Now, there's something mighty wrong about you, Trimble, and I can't figure it at all. But I'm sure going to find out. It seems to me that in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, the executives, whether men like Guy Della Chapa or Harry Ackerman or whomever, were men with an experience in and a feeling for the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could, they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a conference or a meeting with the uh, then CBS brass. Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea, and you either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no. Can you identify this voice? As office boy, I made such a mark that they gave me the post of a junior clerk. I served the writs with a smile so bland, copied all the letters in a big round hat. In the next half hour, you will hear the voices of some of the world's best-known personalities on radio's newest, most exciting fun game, Says Who? Yes, it's time for Says Who? And here's the star of Says Who? A man who defies the elements and practically everybody else, Henry Morgan! Says Who debuted alongside the Stan Freeberg Show on Sunday, July 14, 1957, as part of a week in which CBS Radio added $765,000 in new billings. Says Who would be sponsored every other week by Look Magazine. I tell you, there's one thing I admire, it's optimism. Thank you very kindly for yours. We have an interesting panel ready to play Says Who, but before I introduce them to you, let's listen to this message. Did you fill up the gas tank of my swept-wing Dodge? Yes, I did. That'll be 80 cents. She didn't need no oil or nothing. Okay, wipe off the windshield, will you? Yeah. <laughs> hey, this is some big windshield, boy. Yes, it's a Dodge picture window windshield. I can't reach the middle part, right up there where it curves back. 
Hold my ankles and boost me out on the hood. All right. Up uh, you go. Miles, this is a big car. I still can't reach all the windshield. Well, just walk out on the hood and finish it up. Okay. Boy, you must be rich to own a big car like this. Well, actually, Dodge costs less than 59 different models of the low-price field. I just got all the car I was paying for. I forgot my squeegee. Here it is. Why, I could afford a Dodge. Come on, we'll see a Dodge dealer. Well, put up to the pump and I'll swing down. Now, let's meet our panel. An optimistic little group. First, uh, Mr. Joey Adams. Well, Mr. Henry Morgan. It's nice to have you aboard. And, uh, Dagmar. Hello, everybody. Lovely to have you aboard. Thank you. Mr. Orson Bean. Let's squeeze the whole show into 20 minutes, Henry. I'm working as fast as I can. Next to Mr. Bean is Hermione Gingold. Yes. <laughs> Can't go any faster than that. That's our panel. <laughs> Panel, I know you know the rules. We play a voice which you try to identify. The listener suggesting the voice gets $15. If you don't come up with the right answer, the listener gets an additional $15. You have the voice texts on cards in front of you. Let's play Says Who. Panel, the first voice was suggested by Mr. Jim Goodrich of Carmichael, California. La, 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 la. the identification of that voice, please. Few people know that this glamorous movie star can sing. You are listening to the voice of Ava Gardner. Ooh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Shall we play uh, a bit of says who? Joey Adams, let's start with who. Uh, la -da la -da -da. What language is that? Uh, that's just known as lyrics. Those are no lyrics. But and if they are lyrics, would I know who they are if I had the lyric? Joey, on my piece of paper, does not say whether she is singing or not. I have what you have, la-da-da-da, and we go to uh, Dagmar-da-da. Is she about my size? Well, honey, uh... <laughs> you mean up and down? Well, any way you want to look at it. I mean, uh, is she as tall as I am, or no. as, uh... No, this is... As tall same. as Joey? About Joey's size. <laughs> does she know Xavier Cougat? Now, how would I know a thing like that? <laughs> oh, I see what you're getting at. No. She wouldn't. Uh, is she in show business? Yes. Is she a singer? No. That's what I figured. Who is it, folks? <laughs> <laughs> they saw the card. Well, let's see. Is she um, fat? No, dear. She thin? She's uh, nicely done. <laughs> and we go to Orson B. Is she as anything as Dagmar? Yes. Oh, I have a clue. <laughs> let's see. Does she know Ricardo Montalban? It's all right with me. I do not know who she knows. You don't know whether or not she knows Xavier Cougart, though. I know. She doesn't know Xavier Cougart. This lady is not primarily a recording star. She is not. Is this lady primarily a film star? She is so. She sings good, Henry. For a film star, yeah. Yeah. She might record. If I had a small company, I might throw her a number or two, you know, see how it went. Why don't you get in touch with her after we find out who it is? I wouldn't want to go for much money, but I figure if we could make one cheap enough. Well, while you're a uh, <laughs> mercenary in your the record business, let's go to Hermione Gingold. Uh, yes. 
Yes. You're very amiable this, this evening. This, uh, la-di-da-da, etc., cetera, it says here, is that the actual lyric, or is it because she has forgotten what the lyric is <laughs> and is ad-libbing? As a matter of fact, uh, this girl had it on cue cards, as I recall. Is she a, a, a great star in films? Makes a lot of money. Um... Uh, and, uh, oh, has she been in the news a lot lately? No more than usual. And we go I to... I think I know who it is, but you can guess. <laughs> Whisper to me, honey, I'll Miss Gingold hit Mr. Bean, whose turn it isn't. It's I'm going to hit Dagwood here, a Dagmar. What, <laughs> <laughs> I look like a sandwich, honey? I would like to say... sandwich, folks? I would like to say that this... This is the first time... If there's a first time in history that this lady has been mistaken for a sandwich. Thank you. <laughs> Joey? Now, let, let, let's recapitulate. Oh, oh, I beg your pardon. Yeah. I'm game. Now, let me want. see. She doesn't know Ricardo Montalbatten and uh, <laughs> Xavier Cougat, right? She's built like me. Oh! Oh, hardly. Oh, well, that's oh. what you said. Uh, Dagmar said, is she like her or like me? And no. you said more like me. Just in height. Just, Just in, in height. height? Oh, yes. How I've... about in depth? In depth, she's got it all over you, kid. I have an answer that can turn this place into a garage right now. There's <laughs> a girl on, on the screen that has not been in the news lately. She doesn't know Montalbatten or Cougat. And she's uh, about my height you know, if, in, in length, the, if but we, different if, in width, right? If we had the time, I'd like to discuss this Montalbatten with you. <laughs> well, ding dong, uh, the question's dead. With all those clues from Joey, I think I know the answer, but you tell it. You gotta, you gotta hope? No. You've lost anyway. All right. Because we're gonna it. send $30 to Jim Goodrich in Carmichael, California. That was Ava Gardner. Uh, really? Yes, and uh, now you know. She's much shorter than me. Joey, I've never seen her in the flesh. Why? <laughs> She's always in Europe, that's why. Well, I've never I, seen her in Europe either. I had a uh, dream that I was going with Ava Gardner, but it turned out to be a lousy... Gunsmoke started on the air in 52, as we've mentioned, and network radio was beginning to die just at the time we were starting. I guess what I mean is that in those early days, if you were doing a, uh, a series and the series was canceled, something else popped up and you were told to start preparing for a show called Such and Such, which would go on the air next Tuesday. There was always something to replace the show that went off the air. By the end of the 50s, and certainly by the 60s, when a show went off the air, that was just the end of that half hour or that hour or that two-hour segment, and it was filled with something else. And that something else usually came from New York. It was a sad period for those of us who were fond of radio and enjoyed radio, and indeed had been brought up in radio, and it was not sour grapes. Mary, no! God, let, let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? 
with a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. You know, I've heard reports about that, too. Speaking of reports, Mr. C., mm-hmm. where'd you get that first name of yours? That sounds like one to me. Well, I tell you, back in the knee britches days when I was a wee little tyke, a mere breath of a lad, as we say in Spokane, I used to totter around the streets with a gun on each hip. My favorite after-school pastime was a game known as cops and robbers, and I didn't care which side I was on. When a cop or a robber came in view, I would haul up my trusty six-shooters, made of wood, and loudly exclaim, bang, bang. As my luckless victim fell, clutching his side, I would shout, bang, bang, and I'd let him have it again. Then as his friends came to his rescue, shooting as they came, I would shout, bang, da bang, 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 bang. I'm surprised they didn't call you Killer Crosby. Now tell me another story, Grandpa. No, so help me, that's the truth. <laughs> Ask Mr. DeMille. Now vouch for it, Bing. The Ford Roadshow, starring Bing Crosby. You're ahead in a Ford all the way. Brought to you by Ford, America's best-selling V8, 25 years straight. A fellow named Gene Austin sang a lot of songs, a lot of great songs. Made a lot of records, too, that sold over a million. And in the days, too, when there, there were only a million or so phonographs in the land. But I suppose my blue heaven, in fact, I'm confident about it, must have been his biggest. When whippoorwills call and even... In September of 1957, Bing Crosby now 54 years old, was gearing up to host the Edsel TV special and generating praise for his recent dramatic role as Errol Carlton in Man on Fire. He won an Academy Award, had his own radio show since 1931, and championed the widespread use of primetime network transcription. He got disenchanted with having to be at a certain point every week, and he became disenchanted with audiences, not with people, but with audiences of people who camped in the neighborhood of Sunset and Vine. There were certain people who had a horrible laugh. They exploited this because their friends would say, I heard you laugh on the Bing Crosby show. I heard you laugh on the Hope show, you know? Uh, you know. <laughs> so in the later years, when tape came in, Bing went to his own expense of transporting the show to San Francisco. We made many of the shows in the Marine Auditorium in San Francisco. We went up on Sunday night and recorded on uh, in late Monday afternoon and came back. The Ford Roadshow featuring Bing Crosby debuted on September 2nd, 1957. It aired five days per week on CBS for five minutes. These were taped segments edited by Mundo McKenzie and written and produced by Bill Morrow. The Just Heard John Scott Trotter conducted the orchestra. It included an opening theme, one or two songs by Bing, and commercials by Ken Carpenter. This episode aired on September 24th. What was the best thing you've been associated with? What did you enjoy the most? Oh, I don't know. I enjoyed the whole thing. That is, radio was a a wonderful time to work in those days, a great time, because that was it. People had that for entertainment. 
the great thing about it was, I think, about radio, above television, is it was, it was consistent. That the show went on and stayed in that same spot year after year after year. And I think it sold merchandise regardless of ratings, just because it was there. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's unfortunate that they switched the shows around so much. You get used to a, a television show in a certain particular spot at night. You look forward to it. All of a sudden, it's on a different night. Yeah. Bing, if someone asked you to write a lyric about the 57 Ford V8, uh, how would you go about it? Well, that's quite a question. I'll tell you what I think I'd do, Ken. I'd seek inspiration by riding in a, in a years-ahead new 57 Ford with a Thunderbird V8 engine. Thus, you see, I'd refresh my memory on the glorious way she goes up high hills and, and makes traffic a treat. Then I'd stand back and I'd gander that years-ahead sculptured styling of the 57 Ford, and I should then let fly with the following paean of praise. Ford V8 For style and power drive the Ford V8 The very lowest of the low price three Just drive and see Why Ford's the most from coast to coast in popularity And 57 Ford Are styled ahead to hold their youth for years and years Before your old bus looks funny Get in the money, trade it for Ford today. And so concludes another session. Thanks very much. The Ford Road Show, starring Bing Crosby with Buddy Cole's music, has been brought to you by Ford, America's best-selling V8, 25 years straight. Listen for the other Ford Road shows with the World News Roundup, Rosemary Clooney, Arthur Godfrey, and Edward R. Murrow. Ford's agency of record, J. Walter Thompson, saturated radio with five-minute segments. They also sponsored a show with Rosemary Clooney, a chit-chat by Arthur Godfrey, and news by Edward R. Murrow. Moderator for a report on integration is CBS News Washington correspondent, Griffin Bancroft. Well, the headlines in the news about school integration in the South right now are all in Little Rock, Arkansas. But in addition, there is still the broader question. Just what progress has integration made in the South since the Supreme Court outlawed separate schools in its decision of May 17, 1954? What is the background of Little Rock and what will be its effect on the future? What is the situation in the South today? Earlier in this episode, we spoke of the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and the Hattie Cotton Elementary School bombing in Nashville, Tennessee. With forced integration underway, federal troops needed to be called out to Little Rock, Arkansas, where a group of nine African-American students enrolled in Little Rock Central High School were stopped from attending by the state's governor. On September 27th, CBS Radio ran a special on the progress, or lack thereof, in Southern school integration in the three years following Brown versus the Board of Education. ...vineyard that our guests have labored. So Mr. Shoemaker, as executive director of the Southern Education Reporting Service, suppose we start with you and ask you to give us a general picture of just what is the status of integration in the South today. Yes, Mr. Bancroft, let me give it to you very briefly. There is a uh, considerable amount of desegregation in the border states, the upper tier of states. Uh, There is a lesser amount in the uh, states of the Mid-South, in fact, a very small amount 
and pretty solid segregation in the Deep South. There are 745 school districts which have desegregated since 1954 out of about 3,000 that are biracial. Well, uh, before we go any farther, Mr. Shoemaker, I wonder if I could ask you to explain briefly just what your organization is and how it works and how you get this information. Yes, Southern Education Reporting Service was set up in 1954, as you said, to trace developments in this field. We get our information through a corps of correspondents, of whom these uh, three gentlemen are members, and uh, we publish Southern School News, and uh, we have just are uh, preparing to bring out this book with all deliberate speed, which summarizes the developments in this field in the uh, three years since the Supreme Court decision. And seen. these newsmen here, I know they have each contributed a chapter to this book, and they are part of your staff, in effect. Yes, each, each one of them has contributed among 11 contributors. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, Mr. James has written uh, one of the opening chapters, uh, which deals in uh, large part with the situation in the border states. And if you'd like, we might uh, begin at that point. I think that's fine. Walden well, James? Mr. James. The general summary. <coughs> well, as Mr. Shoemaker was saying, in the border states, uh, there's been a much higher degree of compliance with the court's decree. I think it'd be worthwhile to uh, limit ourselves briefly to a look at what happened in Kentucky, which regards itself as a southern state, but which has not followed the deep south pattern. The moment the Supreme Court ruled in 1954, the governor of Kentucky, at that time Governor Weatherby, mm -hmm. said immediately that Kentucky will do whatever is necessary to comply with the law. The Republican senator, the only one at that time, Senator John Sherman Cooper, said just about the same thing. And then various state officials and school superintendents like Mr. Carmichael and Louisville all sort of got onto the general uh, compliance uh, theme and said the, it was more or less inevitable, let's face it, and get on with it. In the three years since then, we've had uh, no integration the first year because of local legal rulings as far as state law were concerned until the Supreme Court's implementation ruling in 1955. Immediately that year, several districts desegregated. In the past two years, including the opening of school this past month, this month, you now have 105 districts in Kentucky desegregated uh, out of 217. But in those 105 districts, you have 80% of the Negro school-age pupils of the state. That is pretty well the, the border pattern with the possible exception of Delaware uh, and uh, then uh, quite the other side of it, West Virginia, I believe since the opening of schools this year is the first state to have 100% desegregation in its counties. Yes. Well, mind you, I think we couldn't leave the border states without pointing out that they have had their troubles, as all readers of newspaper headlines know. The city of Louisville had remarkably little or none at a time when other cities or towns in Kentucky were having the National Guard called out and state troopers sent in a year ago. Well, now, what about the, the Deep South? Mr. Workman, you, uh, uh, you're stationed in that area. That is your bailiwick, is it? What, what is the status of things there? Yes, Mr. Bancroft, and the story with respect to the Deep South is completely different from that that Mr. James has just described. The, uh, with all deliberate speed in those eight states with which I'm most concerned, at least in this book, has been that the deliberate speed has been, in almost every instance, in the opposite direction. That is, towards strengthening segregation <coughs> and maintaining the separate schools which have existed through the years. 
Now, there's been recently, and in fact, the uh, only crack that has been made in that solid wall of resistance has come uh, this year, beginning of this school year, in North Carolina, with the admission of Negroes to schools on a very limited basis and after screening in the towns of uh, Charlotte, Raleigh, and Winston-Salem. That was done with the... Uh, Excuse me, Bill Greensboro yeah. instead of Raleigh. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. yes, Greensboro. <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is that in each of these instances, it was done by the action of the local school board in accord with the North Carolina Pupil Placement Law, which, as I said, makes for screening and admission of selected Negro students to these white schools. But other than for that, if you take the huge uh, crescent that we call the Deep South, and that sweeps from Virginia through North and South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, with Florida thrown in, the resistance there has been, to use a Virginia term, massive. And there is now, uh, with the exception of the three North Carolina communities I mentioned, there has not been admitted any Negro student to any white school in that entire area in the three years since the decision. He's had two out of three, a single and a double, and Billy Cox is playing him right on the third base line. One out, last of the ninth, back of pitches. Bobby Thompson takes a strike call on the inside corner. Bobby hitting at 2.92. He's had a single and a double, and he drove in the Giants' first run with a long fly to center. Brooklyn leads it 4 to 2. Hartung down the line at third, not taking any chances. Locked in without too big of a lead at second, but he'll be running like the wind if Thompson hits one. Franklin throws. There's a long play. I can't be able to lead. The Giants won the pennant. 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 Bobby Thompson hits into the very back of the left field stand. The Giants won the pennant. And they're going crazy. They're going crazy. In September of 1957, baseball's Dodgers, who'd called Brooklyn home since 1884 and Ebbets Field since 1913, played their final games in Flatbush. They'd been world champions just two years earlier. It's close, and umpire Summers calls him safe on the daring maneuver. But Yogi Berra doesn't think so. Simultaneously over in northern Manhattan, the New York Giants, champions in 1954, and at home near Coogan's Bluff since 1883, play their final games overlooking the Harlem River. Both teams would move 3,000 miles away to California. The Dodgers would settle in Los Angeles, first at Memorial Coliseum, and then in the famed Dodger Stadium, winning the 1959 World Series, and five more in the years since. The Giants moved to San Francisco, played their home games at the mercilessly windy Candlestick Park, before moving to a new stadium in 2000, winning three world titles in the 21st century. New York would be left without a National League team to rival the Crosstown Yankees for five years, until the New York Metropolitans, colloquially known as the Mets, were formed. They're winners of two world championships of their own. In 1960, Hall of Fame pitcher Bob Feller, hosting a syndicated radio show, spoke about the last Giants baseball weekend at the Polo Grounds. 
It was the final game of the 1957 season, but in a way, it was the end of an era. Many months before, New York baseball fans were shocked by the news that their beloved Giants and their arch-rival Brooklyn Dodgers were moving to greener pastures on the West Coast. Only 11,606 diehards turned out for the Giants' farewell at the Polo Grounds. And somehow their feelings were summed up in a sign in the left field bleachers. It read, Stay, team, stay. But the team didn't stay. In the final game in the Polo Grounds, the Giants bowed to the Pittsburgh Pirates 9-1. But the real action came after the final out. The fans swarmed onto the field, dug up home plate, and carted away. Others took big chunks out of the outfield, and still others sought off grandstand seats to take home as souvenirs. If Giants owner Horace Sonum had made an appearance, they would have hauled him away too. Some chased the players across the field and into the clubhouse. Others waited nearby and hollered for one last look at Willie Mays. Mays admitted that he was so nervous when he came to the bat in the ninth inning that his hands were shaking. Willie said, never happened to me before, not even in the World Series or in the All-Star Games. One of the Giants' all-time pitching greats, Carl Hubble, summed it up most eloquently when he said, it doesn't matter where we go, this place, this stadium will always be home to me. There's an old adage that says, change is life's only constant. Post-war hope turned into a labor strife and a baby boom, which gave rise to the most profitable year in radio history, 1948, leading directly to the TV era. The New Deal was more than 10 years old, and an urban diaspora, guided by white flight and atomic fear, brought families to newly blossomed suburban communities and left cities wondering what the future held. More uncertainty lay ahead. Four days into October, the USSR would launch Sputnik 1, the first artificial Earth-orbiting satellite. Everybody's lives got a little nearer and yet a little further apart. But if they wanted to feel close, all they had to do was tune on a radio to a CBS affiliate Sunday afternoons as George Walsh breathed, and now, to open for suspense. They perhaps remember a time when Jack Benny drove radio ratings, while his cast drove him crazy. To a time when Tuesday nights meant NBC with Fibber and Molly, Bob Hope, and Red Skelton. When Thursdays meant Crosby, or Suspense, or Burns and Allen to a time when Norman Corwin helped remember what brought us home. Now, may I rise to thank the master painter of the year? Well, who's that? October. No louvre in the world is big enough to hold his landscapes. He is exhibited in every tinctured leaf and hung in every meadow. Have you seen his skyscapes? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, indeed. They say he mixes pigments out of elemental stuffs and ranges far afield. Did you know his greens come from a special patch of the Aegean? His reds from Yuma in the eyes of Bengal tigers and the powdered beaks of tropical toucans? 
His oranges are skimmed, they say, from surfaces of rising moons. Well, where do his tints of hazel come from? Or hazelnuts. His plum colors. From plums. His fawn from fawns? Precisely. Is he not a marvel then, October? Yes, he is. Not worth the canticle? It's where we're all going anyway. More specifically, it's where we're heading to next month. As a result of intensive work by research institutes and designing bureaus, the first artificial Earth satellite in the world has now been created. This first satellite was today successfully launched in the USSR. Next time on Breaking Walls, we continue our 1957 miniseries by picking up in October with Sputnik, Algeria, Queen Elizabeth's Royal Tour, and dying radio drama. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine, The Los Angeles Times, The New York Times, Radio Daily, and U.S. Radio Magazine. On the interview front, Lillian Bayef, Mary Jane Croft, Sam Edwards, Herb Ellis, Bill Frug, Jack Johnstone, Jeanette Nolan, and Herb Vigrant spoke to Spurdback. For more info, go to Spurdback.com. John Scott Trotter spoke with Same Time, Same Station. Jackson Beck, John Gibson, Larry Haynes, Mary Jane Higby, Jim Jordan, Joe Julian, Mandel Kramer, Jan Miner, Arnold Moss, Bill Robeson, and Guy Sorrell spoke to Dick Pertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Parley Bayer, Ken Carpenter, Bob Hastings, Jim Jordan, and Herb Vigran spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Roberta Bailey Goodwin spoke with John Dunning for his KNUS program from Denver. Norman McDonald was with John Hickman for his Gunsmoke documentary. Jack Crucian and George Walsh spoke with Jim Bohannon in 1987. Ray Bradbury spoke with Jerry Hendiges. Ernest Canoy spoke with Walden Hughes. Ben Grauer spoke with Westinghouse for their 50th anniversary. And William S. Paley gave a speech on November 20, 1958 in New York. Selected music featured in today's episode was Scarborough Fair, Shenandoah, and Autumn Stars by Michael Silverman, The Last Rose of Summer by Tom Waits, Karina Karina, Old Friends, and Where Are You Now by George Winston, Death Runs Riot by Matthias Gole, and This Room is My Castle of Quiet by Billy May and his orchestra. Subscribe to Burning Gotham the new audio soap opera set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendiges, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. 
Breaking Walls episode 144 will continue our 1957 miniseries in the month of October. We'll get spooky together beginning October 1st, 2023, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until October 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 143. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.